Welcome back to Strictly Come Hamster. My name is Joe Ford. I am the host that does absolutely nothing at all but turn up on this podcast. I'm going to hand you over now to the host that schedules, puts together a view of comments and does all of the hard work for absolutely no recompense whatsoever. Mr. Rod Who. Hello, Rod. Oh, well, that's that's made me feel really good, Joe. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, that's a good point, Welcome. actually. I, I demand an increase in my uh, salary, which is currently zero. <laughs> um yeah thank you and uh we're on to our second episode of the podcast i think the first one uh went down a storm last week on christmas day and we're back here on new year's day so happy new year to everybody uh that's joining us today so joe you're absolutely right this is strictly come hamster this is the championship podcast in which every two weeks joe and i will be chasing our way across the toy makers dancing floor accompanied by two very special guests and together, we're going to be ranking, congratulating, possibly condemning a range of stories to decide which is going to pick up the Lucretian glitter ball and which is going to get sent home to Peas Pottage. So on this very special New Year's Day, let's not waste any more time and welcome today's Dancing Hamsters. Gentlemen, would you like to introduce yourself? Let's start with Johnny. Hello, I'm uh, Johnny Morris and I wrote... No, so I, I do so many of these big things. <laughs> we haven't got that long, all right? <laughs> And I wrote um, most of Doctor Who spin-offs. I think I think over fifty percent is is pretty much the the score so far. So all the good ones. I, I write all the stuff which isn't on television. And I'm Jason Thompson, and I don't write any Doctor Who whatsoever. But I have been on several of these podcasts, um, and generally, I think people have enjoyed them. So hopefully, you'll enjoy me here as well. Jason That's is right. the monopolizer of 60s Dalek stories on a hamster with a blunt pen knife because <laughs> he's done pretty much all of them now, including 13 episodes of Mission to the Unknown and Dalek's Master Plan, which was a heroic commentary, may I say? Yeah, I mean, if you count it in terms of stories, I've only done half of them. But in terms oh, of episodes, <laughs> the long ones, because Master Plan, Mission to the Unknown, Power of the Daleks and Evil of the Daleks. So, yeah. So you've done Volcano, so you are used to New Year's special, which Absolutely. segues us beautifully oh, that into was today. beautifully done, was that well done. Joe? So great, yeah. I tell you, I'm learning from the best. <laughs> so uh, what we're going to do today is similar to last week. We're not going to look at a series, but because it's New Year's Day, we're going to look at some of the modern New Year's stories, but also a couple of the Christmas episodes. And like last, last, unlike last week, where we did the standalone Christmas specials, today we're looking at those that are a bit more arc-heavy. So we are going to be looking today at The Christmas Invasion and The End of Time with David Tennant, The Snowmen and Time of the Doctor with Matt Smith, Twice Upon a Time with Peter Capaldi, and the three New Year Jody specials, Revolution, Resolution, and Eve of the Daleks. But before we get into those stories, uh, Johnny and Jason, we have place a great burden upon the pair of you. Uh, we ended our last episode of Strictly on a cliffhanger because we couldn't decide which was the best Christmas special between Last Christmas and Voyage of the Damned. So at the moment, I'm pro Last Christmas and Joe is pro Voyage of the Damned. Uh, and our guests were also equally divided. So can we ask you two gentlemen, please, to fight it out between you? We need a winner. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, um, I, I think I was, I was talking about Doctor Who with my son the other day, and he mentioned that Voyage of the Damned is his favourite story of all time. Ooh. So I'm going to go with my son. I'm not going to disagree with him. <laughs> I, think, I think it has Kylie Minogue, Bernard Cribbins, Clive Swift. It's just... Um, a ridiculous sort of surfeit of 
Doctor Who Riches. It's very funny, very clever. And yeah, I mean, the other one's good as well. <laughs> so, Jason. Well, I can safely say the deadlock is broken because I would choose Voyage of the Damned. Oh, yes. <laughs> Disappointing. Because for the reason, for among the others, the reasons that uh, that Johnny mentioned, uh, Kylie Minogue, Bernard Cribbins, etc. <laughs> but rather, uh, rather, Last Christmas didn't really grab me. I'm not a huge fan of dream reality confusion stories where basically you can do whatever the hell you like because it's a dream and i wasn't terribly impressed with danny pink throughout the um series at all so having him show up again just made me groan um that said i've you know there are episodes i'm gonna tear into in this podcast and oh, last christmas yeah. is obviously a, a good starting point but with <laughs> all of them there is always something to enjoy and i do love all these specials in different ways um and for me i mean last christmas the scene where they're riding a sleigh and the 12th doctor who has been a grumpy git up to that point just revels in the joy of enjoying the absurdity and riding santa's sleigh i think is a beautiful moment um and the bit with clara about when did you start believing in fictional or you know people like that and she said oh can't you guess or something like that and it's you know that that is a lovely moment i do like that bit but overall the whole story just didn't grab me and as i say i'm not a fan of dreamscape stories where the laws of reality can be ignored and so you can have silly things like messages appearing on blackboards and dead boyfriends turning up to tell them tell you that they died for you and things like that so no <laughs> I mean, I don't wow. like Danny Peak either, but he's a very hot man, Samuel Anderson, and he's naked in a Santa costume in that one. So <laughs> I can't write it off entirely. Not entirely. Fine. So we have a very clear winner then. We have Voyage of the Damned as our first winner. Woo. Thank you. Right. Well, let's get on to today's episode then. So let's get straight into round one. So this is the first knockout stage. So each of us will be picking two stories from the eight that we're covering today. And in good old time-honoured Hamster tradition, we're going to pick the three reasons, either why we want to champion a story or why we want to reject a story. Uh, and your job will be to persuade and cajole the rest of the panel to your way of thinking. Uh, the rest of us, uh, after your presentation, will will think and consider your opinions and then go with what we thought about anyway. But uh, <laughs> let's kick off and see how we roll. So last time we spun a wheel at, at random, the hamster wheel, to decide who was going first. But I think it's only fair that we start with our guests. So, Jason, would you like to kick us off, please, by picking the story you either want to on, champion Jason. or you want to condemn? That means you well, get the choice of the eight here. Exactly. I'm Joe gonna... and I are getting the dregs. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I am going to start then with... I'm going to start at the beginning. I'm going to pick the Christmas Invasion. Uh the Christmas Invasion is one of my favourite stories. I absolutely love it um, for a number of reasons. Uh, is it objectively the best story in the in the canon? I don't think so. Is it really blatantly obvious that it's an episode that was already written that was padded out to be Christmassy? Yes, it is. But who cares? Because I love it. It's really Christmassy. Um, and one of the reasons I love it is because casting your mind back to 2005 doctor who has come back and not only has it come back it has stormed into the public consciousness 
everyone is watching it. It's got Doctor Who merchandise in the shops again. You see people in Tesco's arguing over the last three Daleks on the shelf and things like that. And it has become so successful that after one series, it's got a Christmas special episode. And that's a mark of success um, for any series to suddenly get a Christmas episode. That's brilliant. And so when it was announced that there was going to be a Christmas special, I was over the moon. Um, I had Christmas with um, with Zoe. We weren't married at this point, but we had Christmas Day together and we sat and watched the Christmas Invasion on Christmas Day. New Doctor Who on Christmas Day at Christmas, because, you know, there's the robot Santas, there's the Christmas decorations. Oh, it was it was fabulous. I really, really enjoyed it. It's a really Christmassy Christmas special before this was a thing and before it became apparent that Christmas was kind of being shoehorned into a few of them with varying degrees of success. And I think one of the reasons this one is so successful is that it wasn't supposed to be a Christmas special. It was hastily rewritten because I believe I'm right in saying that obviously Christopher Eccleston's decision to depart at the end of series one meant that series two had to begin with a post-regeneration episode. And I believe that was going to be the Sycorax invasion. Ah. But then the BBC that. said, we need a Christmas special from you, but it's going to follow parting of the way. So that still has to be the post-regeneration story. So to make it a Christmas special, it's a 45 minute Doctor Who episode about the Sycorax invasion with 15 minutes of extra stuff with Christmas, with robot Santas and deadly Christmas trees, which are dealt with very early on and are called pilot fish referring to it. And then we move on to the Sycorax. And the fact that it happens to be on Christmas Day for the rest of the episode is really beside the point. Um, Jason, until... that killer Christmas tree is the best thing in that episode. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> it's fabulous. I love it. Um and if I'm going to go in and put in some reasons for championing it in terms of the fictional st structure of the story as well, the Doctor is not in it for a large part of the episode, which gives us a chance for Rose to explore her feelings around what the hell has happened, because as is important in a post-regeneration story, the companion is the identification figure for the audience who are not familiar with it. For us jaded old farts who've been watching Doctor Who for years and years and years, we know what regeneration is. We know this new guy is, is the Doctor. We just have to decide whether we like him or not. But we know there are people who came to Doctor Who in 2005 with no idea of what all this regeneration stuff was like. So they got the explanation that the Ninth Doctor gave about Time Lords having a little trick to cheat death. And then he turned into David Tennant and these people must have been going, what the hell is this? They're not having him in the episode for ages and focusing on the other characters was brilliant. And that allowed at the very end, the 10th Doctor to emerge, mm. save the day and convince us all that, yes, he is the Doctor. Absolutely. And David Tennant storms onto the screen. And apart from those couple of minutes where he deals with the Christmas trees and then collapses again, basically convinces us he's the Doctor in five minutes of screen time. And it's brilliant. I love it. So The Christmas Invasion is just a superb story, not because it's a particularly brilliant story. It's fairly basic. There's an alien invasion. The Doctor deals with it at the end and there's all the post-regeneration shenanigans in there. But because it was chucked on at Christmas and had all the extra Christmas trimmings added, it, it just it was an experience watching it that is just brilliant. So 
I love the Christmas invasion, and I defy any of you to disagree with me. <laughs> Other <Johnny>. opinions <laughs> are available. Well, they are wrong, of course. Uh, well, I, I, I've, I've, I've prepared my list of three things about the Christmas invasion. They're all they're all largely positive, I think, um, because I think uh, it's as you say, it's um, it, it's the wonderful Russell Christmas special thing of fifteen minutes in, everyone forgets it's Christmas. <laughs> You know, something 50 minutes in, oh, it's just a normal. It's a, that's when the normal Doctor Who story begins. And you can see that format is followed with The Runaway Bride the following year and so on. Um, what I say, I think uh, one of the things I, I love about it is it starts this sort of thread um, of, uh, of secret bases under L London landmarks. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I, I used to joke that... Um, Russell had a tea towel of London landmarks, all the different places you could go, and he was just ticking them off as he <laughs> went along. Um, so you have a secret base under Canary Wharf, you have a secret base under the Thames flood barrier, and then he's sort of going, he's getting a bit stuck, going, I can't, the secret base under Trafalgar Square, I don't know, it's <laughs> base under Abbey Road crossing, I think he's running out of tourist hotspots. Uh, but I love that. I love them. Um, there's lots of. There's actually one of those great things is when you can watch it again, and there's a lovely detail that when uh, the Doctor wakes up uh, after the Christmas tree, and and Jackie Taylor goes, "What do you want?" and she offers him a cup of tea, and you're just going, "That's so clever," because that's what actually would have killed him at the time, and Jackie Taylor got it right straight away, and. It's things like that where you know Russell's gone back in and put that in as a little detail, okay, just to give that character an extra sort of little little gold star. Um, so yeah, and I think um, Jason's right. You can see the sort of the confidence that they have. They have a hit on their hands, and one of the ways I think that's reflected. And one of the, I remember enjoying at the time is that it has unit in it, and that was I think the first thing that had been brought back ever from the old series. Um, you know, up until that point, they'd, I think they'd mentioned a, a planet Lucifer in Bad Wolf, which had been in a book or something. You know, really unintentional, not even a, a reference. But because there'd been a whole year of people going, is it a reboot? Is it actually linking to the old series? Um, and then you have Unit, and then that opens the floodgates. Then you have Sarah Jane Smith. And canine, and you have, you know, um, everything. The macro, the macro within a couple of weeks. So <laughs> it has that. You can see that that sense of relief and joy uh, coming through it. Um, so yeah, I, I'm I, I love it too. Um, go for it. Well, while while um, I while you mentioned details in there, there was a little detail that I particularly enjoyed uh, throughout the Christmas invasion, which followed on from. Um, the events of Aliens of London and World War Three, when um, they find, or when the uh, when the government aide is murdered by the Slovene, and the Doctor asks Harriet what was his name, and she says I never asked him. And if you watch the Christmas Invasion, she makes a point of asking everybody's name, mm -hmm. everyone she's introduced mm -hmm. to, she asks their name. And she introduces herself and kicks off the "Yes, we know who you are" gag, which Aww. is 
Another which one. I love. Okay. I mean, it's silly, but I love it. Um, <laughs> you know, and uh, but yeah, I love that little detail that the previous time some poor government dog's body was murdered and she had no idea what his name was. And now she's making a point of asking names and getting to know people. I really like that. The best version of that gag is the Dalek in the Stolen Earth, isn't it? Who says, yes, we know who you are. <laughs> yeah. God, it's great. Um, well, I'm also going to keep this in. One, because I think Jason is very convincing, as ever. And two, because there's two line readings in this episode that I think are two of the best line readings ever. One is, I'm going to get killed by a Christmas tree, which <laughs> never fails to make me laugh every time I hear it. But a, a sort of say subtler it's not very really subtle at all but the bit where she's given the speech harriet jones and she asks about the royal family and then she just goes oh they're on the roof ah mm -hmm. oh, this makes me howl as well <laughs> it's got some great comedy and it's got that brilliant sting in the tail at the end where she gets tortured to destroy the ship so just when we're relaxing russell sort of thrusts a knife at you which i really really like so yeah definitely going through to two to me Love well, it. It's, it's four because I'm also going to champion Christmas Invasion. And Jason pretty much um, summarized what I had on my notes, apart from sitting with your wife watching it, which I didn't do. So, <laughs> But apart from that, I pretty much had everything you read on your list. The only other one thing I'd probably bring up, which I really like about it, is that I kind of watching it again, at the heart of this story are two middle-aged women. Our heroes are not the Doctor and Rose. To me, they're Jackie and Harriet Jones. Mm -hmm. and, and Jackie's really, she's really strong in this story. I think it's really telling the beginning. We do the zoom down that we had at the beginning of Rose, but we end up zooming on to Jackie. And Jackie is the absolute heart of that. Certainly for the first half of the story, she's absolutely the heart of it. Rose is falling to bits. And, and actually, I was quite surprised again watching it in the context of these, how little Rose does. And she's quite petulant and she's upset that the doctor's changed his face, even though, you know, the world's going to hell in a handbag. She's kind of just obsessed with what she's obsessed with. Jackie's got a broad perspective on things. And, and Rose says, oh, let's run back to the TARDIS and hide. And even Jackie said, is that it? Is that what we're doing? She's got more about her than Rose has got. And, and she's absolutely the heart of that beginning. She's the one that gets threatened by the, uh, by the revolving Christmas tree. She's the one who looks after the Doctor. Interestingly, she's the one who's actually asleep on the Doctor's bed, not Rose. Mm -hmm. So she's doing everything to look after him. She kind of She's our, our lead for that first half. And then we get Harriet Jones, who I think is magnificent. Penelope Wilton plays the, the confidence that characters had, that growth between Aliens of London and here. She's a completely different character. She's got all that confidence of becoming Prime Minister, even though she's still damn well going to show her ID badge to everyone, including the Sycorax, say <laughs> Harriet Jones, Prime Minister. <laughs> I'm not sure what they made of her ID badge, but yeah, she's, she's absolutely fabulous. Um, and I think she leads the second half of it. And she's our hero for that second half until, if you rightly say, Joe, the, there's always a flaw in a in a hero, and her flaw is to yeah uh, allow Torchwood to blow up the ship, and that created a world of controversy. I mean, remember it being in the papers. I think even before the episode had aired, there, there was an allusion to Margaret Thatcher bombing the uh, Belgrano in the Falklands. Um, so you know, Russell was was causing controversy and stirring the pot even well, back I in two thousand five. Like to say that Harriet Jones is ultimately proved right, you know, in the Stolen Earth. Oh, absolutely, she <laughs> redeems herself in the Stolen Earth. Absolutely, I still. Um, like to believe a trapdoor fell away, you know, when that darling shot her <laughs> and she escapes in a cab somewhere. Like, I don't think she's dead. But isn't it interesting when she goes into units, we hardly get to know any of those unit personnel. There's one major who we don't really get to know, and he's quite, he's not written 
particularly in an exciting way. It's Harriet Jones that completely leads that. Uh, mm. She takes complete control of, of UNIT, which again, watching it now in retrospect, knowing, you know, we've had uh, Kate Lethbridge, here, Osgood, all the various personnel, we don't really get anybody, quite a nameless bunch in this. And Harriet Jones absolutely steals that lead. So I completely agree, but that's my other, that's my other add-on. But I think it's, it's four. I'll take a punt and say if the Christmas invasion wasn't... Oh, Jason's cat's come to say hello. If the Christmas invasion wasn't as successful as it was, I don't know if it would have put into jeopardy further Christmas specials. I think it's almost sort of unanimously agreed, not just amongst us, that that is a solid episode of Doctor Who. And I'm not sure all the Christmas episodes are considered that way. 9.8 million viewers watched at that point. So, yeah, it was a big hit. I think, as I, I think, I still think that one of the reasons it's still so popular and still so successful as a Christmas special is that it wasn't supposed to be one originally. Mm. Um, whereas when it's very clearly been written as a Christmas special, I think some of them go a little bit overboard with shoehorning Christmas into them. So, with some degree of success, I mean, Christmas Carol is a super; it's one of my favourites. But it's very obviously just let's tell a Christmas story. Um, whereas the Christmas Invasion is. We've got a Doctor Who story that just happens to be set on Christmas Day. Oh, you like the Christmas Carol? Oh, don't listen to no, our first episode start. then. <laughs> Let's not go back there again. <laughs> Excellent. So Christmas Invasion stays in till round two. So, so for our second story, Johnny, would you like to champion or condemn the story okay, of your well, choice? I'm going to be very, very naughty here. And I condemn uh, the end of time. Uh, Part one and two. Um <laughs> Because um, I, I, I'm second to none in my admiration and my love for Russell D. Davis and everything. Um, so this is clearly devil's advocate. This is, but anyway, um, when you mentioned the um, Stolen Earth and Journey's End, I think that is his finale. I think that is his sort of um, coup de grace. Or he's brought back all the old companions. He's solved everything. He's written everything out. And the question is, does he have anything left to say or anything left in the tank, as it were, with Doctor Who? And while there, there's stuff in End of Time, which I love, I love the multiple John Sims as the master. I think that's gorgeous. And you can you can rewind it and see one in the background doing something differently. And it's just, that's a genius idea. There's parts of it where I think Okay, well, if that had been done four years earlier, Russell wouldn't have let that through. Um, like um, the character of um, Nesmith, who wants to give his daughter immortality. Um, it's a really interesting idea, but we never really get any sense of why he wants to do that. Or, you know, um, <clears throat> you sort of think, well, if she had some sort of, <laughs> if she was had a terminal disease basically that she only had six months to live you'd absolutely understand where else to give immortality or if her mother had died in a tragic accident or anything if there'd been any reason for it but you're sort of watching it going well he's a that's sort of been sketched in he's a kind of generic baddie in most you know he's the businessman who just wants to do stuff because he's got more money than sense so there's that aspect which i think is uh, showing a bit of uh, fatigue, I don't know. Um, uh, easing the foot off the pedal, I think is where we're putting it. They um, they they barely feature 
Do they? That those two, the Naismith and the daughter. And it's because you've got a more interesting villain in the master, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think it's you can sort of tell when Russell is less interested in characters because they do just sort of fade into the background. And with those two, if you you have to try and watch them very, very carefully to see them actually running after the building before it explodes at the end, because they're in it so they're barely in it, barely glimpsing. And so that that aspect is sort of under underbaked, I think, undercooked. Um, and when I when I watch it, I'm sort of doing the thing of, of sort of mentally editing it. I'm sort of Ben Cook there with my little sort of uh, kit going, how can I make this shorter and better? Um, because watching it, it's like watching um, the extended version of a Doctor Who story. And, you know, when, you, when you're used to the, a shorter version of Silver Nemesis or whatever, Having the extended version is lovely because you can go, here's the extra bonus bits that don't really add much, but are very lovely. Um, but with this, there's bits where you go, you sort of go, get on with it. <laughs> Almost <laughs> you're going, this scene has gone on too long, or we've we've already got, we've already done this bit. You know, like um, I mean the, the bit that sort of kind of is the master eating all the turkey really fast and stuff. And which is a good beat it's a good thing but it happens twice and it's like that doesn't need to happen twice in a story and the third the third thing which i think is um again the, the sort of thing that russell would not, not would not have let through four years earlier is um a burger van being open in this sort of industrial wilderness <laughs> on christmas eve <laughs> where it's only two customers are two trapped. <laughs> And I'm going, where's I'm going, where's the reality, Russell? Uh, I've never truth? thought of that, <laughs> <laughs> Um so you've got you've just included this so you could have a master eating burgers and killing someone. But I'm still going, why is that? you know that burger van is not going to be good doing a lot of business. <laughs> you know, there's nobody around for miles in any direction. Um, um, aren't the two of them uh, supposed to be homeless anyway? Yeah, I and mean, uh so I just watched that bit and go, this mm. I want I want Russell from the, from 2005 to turn up in that studio. <laughs> this makes this doesn't make sense in its own terms. Cut it, we'll save time, move on. So um that's why despite loving everything else about it, <clears throat> uh I think the end of time is not as great as uh the Christmas invasion. So. Okay. Gentlemen, are you convinced? Jason? I uh, agree entirely. Um, the end of time is, again, I love it. I love the story. I love the, the two-part finale for David Tennant's Doctor, but I agree. I think that Russell T. Davies finished everything with Stolen Earth and Journey's End. That was a superb finale. Uh, and then this was a mess. Um it had things like uh, i mean the master's resurrection is just gobbledygook rubbish uh you know the potions of life and oh i can work out the opposite of the potions of life and what that and oh and extracting and there had to be one moment of me being a picky scientist in this if just master, just one jason <laughs> just this one if the master had kissed lucy on the cheek which undoubtedly he did because they were married and what have you She's been sat in that jail for what about a year or so at this point. Mm. 
Human skin regenerates much quicker than that. There would not be any trace of the master left on Lucy's face <laughs> by that point. Certainly not enough to make a lip-shaped imprint on the napkin that they press against her cheek. I'm surprised you managed to enjoy any Doctor Who, do you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's just me being picky. The Master had to come back and, you know, let's face it, the series is quite happy to bring back the Master, even though he's quite definitely dead. Mm. And this is just the kind of latest in a long line of that. Um, but it has a couple of other bits in it, one of which um, actually kind of impacted my enjoyment and my thoughts about the star beast just a couple of weeks ago because nobody mentioned the fact that if donna remembers me she will absolutely die except that time that she didn't because at this point they go on and on and on about donna never being able to remember never 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 and then she just goes boom sh shoots out all that regeneration energy knocks out the master and the doctor is like i left with the defense mechanism Okay, but you never mentioned that, <laughs> you know, and, and so this time around, again, if Donna ever remembers me, she will die, except, of course, she's already remembered once and didn't die. So Russell lies. I'm, well, I'm lies, going to argue Jason. and say she didn't remember the doctor. She remembered the aliens because we see the montage of aliens. We don't see the doctor in that montage. So that's my guess. Exactly the same that way one. that her daughter remembered the aliens when she made all those little toys. Exactly. Right. Okay, exactly. I will, I will, I will, I will concede that point. <laughs> Lucky hell! Um, well, we've done well here. The other thing that the end of time started the trend for, which has gone on <laughs> all the way until, well, basically until the giggle, is the protracted regeneration, where the Doctor suffers a lethal injury, recovers from any war wounds they may have sustained during the course of the episode, and then spends as long as whatever indulgent plot requirement there is before he actually regenerates. So in this case, he's absorbed a massive lethal dose of radiation. His face just makes itself all better. He resets to his lovely, because we don't want him to have to be made up with cuts and bruises because he forgot he wasn't Superman and jumped out of a spaceship and crashed through the roof of the... Uh, no, Come on, anyway. say what you really feel. <laughs> and... And then he has time to go and visit all the companions that oh, we've come seen. come on, come on. That's and beautiful. As we, and as we find out in the Sarah Jane adventures later, all the other companions as well, because he said he tells <laughs> Joe that he looked in on everybody. And yes, it's beautiful. It's a lovely montage of, of sequences. I, you know, it's brilliant. And I particularly love his sequence with... Um, Wilfred and Sylvia in the church oh, at Donna's yeah. wedding. That is absolutely beautiful, especially when he says he borrowed a quid from Jeff Noble. Mm. And that every time that gets me, I have to say. And so it's beautiful, but it then becomes a thing that the doctor will suffer whatever lethal thing is going to trigger their regeneration. And then they can go on a bit longer. So Matt Smith is ancient and regenerates on top of that tower, except that's just the reset for him to have that long conversation with Clara about what it's like and for Amy to appear in his We're not there yet. We're not there yet, yeah. right? Okay. And then he just sneezes into Peter Capaldi. He does sneeze, doesn't he? Like, oh, and he's there. You know, and then Peter Capaldi, the 12th Doctor, spends three whole episodes holding back <laughs> his regeneration. <laughs> it feels like it. It is, because he comes out with the beginning of World Enough and Time. That's the teaser for World Enough and Time, is him regenerating. Oh, I thought you just meant that speech at the end of Twice Upon a Time. It felt <laughs> then, like yeah, about three episodes. That speech goes on and on and on and on as well. But So it's not until the end of Twice Upon a Time when he actually regenerates. Then in The Power of the Doctor, 
the 13th doctor gets zapped by that laser beam is unconscious for god knows how long and then wakes up and they oh look i'm going to regenerate never mind let's have an ice cream oh that's lovely as well what's wrong with you We've got some very heartless people on this. Oh, no. Joe. I'm not no, sure no, we invited these. Don't you worry. I'm coming with it's the heart just, in a minute. Yeah. It's I'll, just that, so, uh, you know, I just think the whole point of regeneration is the doctor is dying and the regeneration is the biological last fix when they can't recover on their own to just change everything. And there we go. We can have a doc instead of which we get the doctor is dying, but they're OK for a bit longer so they can have these long goodbyes, which are beautiful. I agree. But well, I, just, do, I do it, like the idea that he's, he's like you say, he's regenerating, but he then spends half an hour in a queue waiting for his book to get signed. Look, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. if John Pearl not yet, not yet, give me some more time. When he's left Metabilis 3, we don't know how long he was in that time vortex. That's very true. So, yeah. you know, it's not the first time it's happened. I think it was interference book one and two. That's how long it was uh, between <laughs> that and when he got back to UniHQ. <laughs> Right, well, I'm going to jump in. I completely disagree with your pair of you. Uh, I think it's lovely. <laughs> um, I, I thoroughly enjoy it. I think it's the kind of Doctor Who that you can just literally kick back and just revel in it. Yes, it's RTD, uh, full pelt, madcap. Um, Murray Gold turned everything up to 10. Um, yeah, it's it's huge. It's noisy. It's loud. It's got everything you want. Earth's in peril. You've got a roller coaster plot. You've got you're literally booing and cheering at the master. You've got you've got everything in there. I I think it's great. I love that last um, reunion as he goes around to see them all. I definitely cry at the Sarah Jane piece where Sarah sees him and knows what's going on. Definitely the um, Wilf and, and Sylvia scene as well um, is absolutely beautiful. Uh, and even the Jessica Hine scene, I think, is is clever because it's a, it's a much quieter moment than all the others. We wouldn't have necessarily expected her to be included, but the fact that she is kind of shows the importance of the human nature story. So I love all that bit. I think that's great. Um, but the bit that all the one reason above all i think i'm going to really champion this is that wilf's the companion oh god damn it that was my thing <laughs> go on you know you cannot get enough of bernard cribbins and he is the companion his name's in the opening credits he gets some beautiful scenes with the doctor you've got the scene in the cafe in episode one where the doctor says he's going to die and you get them bonding then you get the scene on the spaceship in the second episode Ooh. where wilf gives him his service revolver uh, and then obviously i mean that moment at the end did anyone's? I certainly didn't see it coming when the, he will knock four times. When the Time Lords are finally vanquished, I thought, hang on, are we actually going to get a regeneration? And then you just get that quiet little knock. And Bernard Cribbins is stood there looking all sad for himself in a cubicle. And your heart just breaks from it. And you know what's... I just think that's lovely. It's very, how it goes clever. from that heroic music. You know, the Doctor's mm. won, Gallifrey's gone, Rassilon's defeated. Whee! And then it just goes, Ooh, and you just hear the boop, boop, boop. So well done. That, that it is, it is. so twist. i'm i'm keeping it in so it, it, it is brilliantly done and i i i can't disagree with any i mean bernard cribbins yay hooray fabulous i also love um almost the rehabilitation of sylvia noble because she was awful in series four she and understandably to a degree um but she was not a good character in in series four she was not pleasant to anybody um Whereas at this point, she's much more kind of nice Nella. about it. <laughs> and she does request, you know, she does beg for the doctor's help when Gallifrey appears in the sky. Um, and so, yeah, there is a, there is a lot to, to recommend. I may be wavering 
on this but mm. i'm also going to throw in the he will knock four times is absolutely fantastic but it also relies on an absolutely ludicrous piece of design technology <laughs> of a device that saves you by venting radiation into a ca case that you cannot get out of oh, and I, i've got it isn't it there's one it's little when you're talking about sylvia i've just got to note the scene because i thought it's just so good and just so human um when the doctor and Wilf are hiding outside the patio doors and Sylvia comes out and she's about to absolutely lay into him. And he just says, Merry Christmas to her. And she can't start shouting at him because she just got to say, Oh, Merry Christmas. <laughs> she's got that, <laughs> that. I've got to be so well-mannered and just say Merry Christmas before I start absolutely slagging <laughs> you off. Um, lovely. So yeah, Joe, you've got the casting. Oh, I've got the swing. We've got wavering I? Jason. Jason is wavering. I'm wavering. Um, I've, got some, I've got some more criticisms if you want to sort of... No, we've had enough for you. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, we've got eight stories to go in and go to bed. Tonight, <laughs> so. um, okay, well, I I gave three reasons if I was going to champion this. I gave three reasons to champion it. Um, and they were all to do with Wilf. You've already named two of them. But the other one was Wilf inside that bubble shooting the laser, which is one of the most genuinely <laughs> joyful sequences in Doctor Who, this old war hero. Uh, far and away, like he's a character in Star Wars, it's wonderful. But I am gonna go against the end of time, oh. I'm afraid, because I do think it's too long. I think the first episode, it could be half the length. You could tell the same story in half the length, and there are. I find the first episode pretty interminable, like so slow in New Who terms. It's so slow, and the second episode, the second the Doctor is rescued. From that point on, I think it's pretty much all gold. Like there's logical inconsistencies, like the, like you pointed out, Jason, and certainly all three of your reasons, Johnny. But like the sentiment is great, like all the way through. And Russell brings so much heart to that last story. And the last sort of fifteen minutes, that whirlwind tour of the RTD era, well, it gets me every single time. But it's too long. It's too indulgent. And I don't think it would have cut the mustard in 2005. So, yeah, end of the time. End of time is out. Wow, first one to fall. End of time. Okay, so Joe, it's you and me to pick ours. Do you want to go first or second? Go on then. No, I'll go first because everyone's been very, very um, trepidatious to go to the Jodie Whittaker era. So I'm going to head straight across to Eve of the Daleks, which I would like to champion because I think it's marvelous. Um, now, I can never say her name. Can somebody correct me, please? Is it Aileen B? Ashling B. One of the best guest turns ever in Doctor Who. She has her own little sort of redemptive arc because she's a terrible person at the beginning of the episode. And I think she's still a bit of a terrible person at the end of the episode. But she's a lot more funny and she's sort of found love and it's wonderful. Um, she somehow manages to be cowardly and brave in that episode um and i just think she's she's so funny I, somewhere around flux i don't know if it's john bishop coming in going you know what chris this ain't very funny because i feel as if he's sorry, right. sorry what was that what was that All right, shut your face, you. <laughs> um suddenly i feel like the era is a lot funnier from flux onwards and even the daleks is one of the funniest episodes and the running gag of her ringing her mother up and her mum saying the lions will be busy. And she's like, no, they won't, mummy. See, I'm doing Irish now. Um, <laughs> You've insulted everybody now. Right. <laughs> Welsh, Welsh next. And the line she has where she goes, um, what is it? If we're relying on my mother to ring us 
to get us out of this, we're all going to die. She's a brilliant character. I, I, another criticism is uh, Chibnall can't write great guest characters. And I think she's a brilliant guest character. So that's my first reason. Uh, my second is, is the direction of that episode. It's a one-shot director that we never, ever see again. I can't even remember her name. How embarrassing. Nessa Laufer. Thank you very much. She's um, stuck with a ton of COVID regulations and one setting. And boy, does she make the most of it. She she shoots the Daleks in a brilliant way. There's like over-the-shoulder shots, lots of um, low-angle shots. She lights the episode brilliantly. It's, it's a visual feast. Given that it's set in a warehouse, it never, ever gets visually dull. And it's a time loop episode, so she has to pace this well. It's a time loop episode where the loop is shrinking as it goes along. So the episode has to get faster and faster and faster. And I just think she paces the whole thing brilliantly. So the direction is my second choice. Great set pieces. And my third reason is Jeff, who is one of the best ever never seen Doctor Who characters who informs so much of this story. He's the fellow <laughs> that's living in the warehouse he's the fella that's storing his business in the warehouse <laughs> he's the fella that is essentially the resolution of the plot we never meet the guy and frankly he's painted in with more depth than most of chibnall's characters put together um i think that's a really great running gag again i could say a hundred things about this episode um yaz's the revelation about yaz having feelings for the doctor which feels very natural and comes in a wonderful scene where she confesses that she doesn't understand what she's feeling, which I think reached out to a lot of people that were watching it. Um, the ending, the, the the warehouse going up, the fireworks. I, just, I love it. I love this episode. It's probably the best of the three New Year's specials. We don't give anything away yet, Joe. I think it's funny. It's clever. It's tightly plotted. It's scary and it's heartfelt. I think it's brilliant, Doctor Who. Okay, gentlemen, what? Okay, um, shall, shall I go first this time? Yeah, uh, go for it. It's I'm gonna um, I broadly agree with Joe. I think it's uh, might well be Christian's best episode. Um, and what I kind of like about it is it's almost like the opposite of Flux because the Flux is such a sort of expansive story that it's constantly cutting away to another characters or the other side of the universe or a different time zone whereas this is um very disciplined and it's very sort of uh it actually has a the, the time loop actually gives it a structure so you it the fact that the time loop is getting shorter does all the work of creating uh pace and tension and jeopardy for you um and the other thing I like about it is um because I, I watch a lot of science fiction films, I've seen I've seen this story done about 30 times. Um often in Portuguese, normally set in a wood wood or somewhere or a disused bunker. And it is a genre in its own right, you know, the idea of Groundhog Day, but with an explosion at the end or with guns. Um and I'm a sucker for those music. I, I've seen it this story done 30 times. I could watch all of those films again and again um, because I just love time loop stories. And I think this uh, works really, really well. And uh, and I think kids can get it because uh, it has the grammar of a computer game. 
it's a puzzle where you have a you have a certain number of lives you go have a a safe position you go back to and you have um monsters that learn from each time as well as you learning from each time and i think uh that is actually quite savvy for chris Chibnall to sort of tap into something that kids really understand um in a way that wouldn't have worked 20 years ago i think actually that's uh that shows he's in touch with the younger generation i think uh so yeah i think it's going to get more of a thumbs up than some other stories like i mentioned jason yeah i completely agree i think eve of the daleks is a fantastic new year's special um when you consider especially when you consider the circumstances under which it was made um you know i got i got really irritated while well, i get really irritated on, on twitter in particular when people were going you know doctor who is it's terrible it's dying it's you know the bbc wants to kill it and it's like no they want to keep making it during a pandemic with all these restrictions and all their limited resource and all the things they can do they want to keep making this series um and i think especially in contrast with legend of the sea devils where i think the covid and everything else really harmed mm -hmm. that episode um the the output of that was not great they make a virtue of it here you've got a very small cast in a limited setting you've got the time loop getting shorter you've got the characters learning from the time loop including the daleks you've got the dalek machine gun fitting which i quite like because you know what the hell it's fun uh, ashling b uh, yeah she's brilliant she's absolutely superb the bit that got me that really got me is in one of those time loops where she's just basically slumped in that freight lift and just says i'm so tired before she yeah. gets shot and i really felt for her at that moment there's one bit uh, in the corridor, isn't it, where she goes, uh, she begs the Dalek not to kill her. Mm. So she's not just a comic character; she, she's nuanced. But it's also also fun. I mean, who who among the long term Doctor Who fans didn't laugh when the Do when the Dalek said, "I am not Nick," <laughs> when we all know that it is Nick. <laughs> it's Nick Twice Pegg over, voice. Yeah. <laughs> and it's Nick Peg inside it, and Nick Peg inside it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, little bits like that. It's fun. I mean, it came in for a lot of stick because the Daleks keep missing people in long, straight corridors. But, you know, they, they always do have that. People, the Daleks people are watch rubbish Doctor shots. Who. Come on. Well, I, I put together a video of Daleks missing things from three feet away. Um, <laughs> it just it, but it doesn't matter. It's you know, it's fun. And yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed it. It was good. I watched it at uh, we were at a friend's house, actually, for New Year's Day. Um, that year and we watched it there and it was it was great fun so there's something about it. watching doctor who on your own is fine but there's something about watching it with friends mm. um and Definitely. in this case it, it it certainly improved the experience of watching this episode and yeah i i think it was great fun i enjoyed I it i've said um chippers can write lots of great comedy lines in this but in every episode he just gets a terrible gag in doesn't he it's not quite to the level of the wi-fi family from the other special we're going to talk about but that bit where he goes exterminated i was like oh chibnall <laughs> what are you doing <laughs> for god's sakes sorry rod over to you no 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 i'm going to surprisingly also give this a pass so yeah, it works for me for all the reasons you said. I think you've pretty much covered everything that I was going to cover. Um, I will do. I loved what Toby Hado mentioned on our last podcast. He rang the cloister bell of caution. Uh, and there are a couple of things in here that 
just kind of niggled me a little bit. Um, one is Nick. I find him quite an odd character. Um, and again, Chibbers just throws things and you think, why? <laughs> so Nick is storing in this warehouse <laughs> the remnants from past relationships that he doesn't throw out, but he's filled an entire warehouse room. So he must be a very, very busy man because he's clearly <laughs> having lots of relationships. Um and he, and he fills that room with things that past girlfriends have left behind, which is very odd. So I was thinking, okay, I get that. Clearly, at least one of these items is going to come back as the resolution to the plot. But it doesn't. They it's do the hang a lantern on Jeff. that, though, don't they? Because then they go, well, they are alive, aren't they? He goes, yeah, of <laughs> course. Cool. So they're like, oh, yeah, but okay. then it finishes. I was expecting that to be kind of a day, you know, a smoking gun, and we were going to come back to that, and one of those would solve the plot. But that's a very odd thing for Ashling B to the, then get it's, in a relationship with him. It's there for it's there for the Doctor and Yaz because he is the good-hearted weirdo, and there's ah, that secret. Yeah. Oh, the good-hearted yeah. weirdos are the keepers, and that's what Yaz thinks about the Doctor. So that's the whole point of that. But I do think that yeah, they they veered a bit from weirdo to actually this guy's a bit of a stalker because he keeps <laughs> coming. He gets his ex's things, and he goes to the place where he knows yeah. this woman he fancies yeah. works every time. And she's clearly onto his game, and she's fed up with it. So the fact that they ended up switching that from what's a really weird stalkerish relationship to actually just aren't they happy together was it didn't quite sit right for Within me I nine say. minutes yeah um, it's a little, but I, un little I understand what they were going for I just think they didn't quite get it right on that one she does yeah. scream at him Sarah Sarah and say like you know you're bloody old I can't remember the exact line yeah. and then Yas goes look he's he's standing just there and she goes yeah well I still yes. mean it you know even though he's just there. <laughs> Uh, and then the only other thing that kind of niggled me a little bit was the escaping through the warehouse doors at the bottom uh, the, in the basement just seemed a little bit easy. There was nothing that would prevent them opening those doors before. So that that final minute of escape just felt a little bit too easy and, and not earned enough. But generally, those are just cautions. Generally, I think it's a really good episode, thoroughly enjoyable for all the reasons you've said. So I'm going to give it a pass as well. So it goes through. Uh, tell you what, those, the other thing, those... of course, about it is that uh, uh, Sarah's mum is played by Mrs. Doyle. Oh, Absolutely. She's great, isn't <laughs> she? We just wanted to say, go on, go on. Go on, go on. The bit where she goes, um, Mum, I love you. Oh, God, are you dying? She <laughs> Why do they always go to extremes, mothers? <laughs> do you know, I'll tell you, the episodes last week were far more contentious, weren't they? They were. Mind you, we've got... We haven't got to the shit yet, have we? No, no we're, we're plowing through the gold. I think we did this. <laughs> no, actually, we didn't. We got rid of some early on. But we're sticking with gold, and I'm going to stick with gold because it's my turn. So I am going for Twice Upon a Time. Oh, because... grief. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think we know where Joe's going. Did you say gold? Gold. Oh, okay. Sorry, continue. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> this is my favourite of the episodes that we're talking about today. Yeah, Joe's jaws just dropped open. I absolutely love Twice Upon a Time, and I will tell you some of the reasons why I love it. So first of all, I love the fact that we actually haven't got a big, there's no big bad in this. And um, if you listen to last week's podcast, you'll probably say, oh, he's being a little bit contradictory here. Because last week I criticised the Doctor, the Widow and the Wardrobe for not having a big bad or a tangible threat or menace of any sort. But here, I think why, why I like it here and I didn't like it there, is because although we haven't got a big bad, we've got a big central mystery. Uh, and I think the mystery is enough for me. It's a mystery that's worth investigating. 
And the mystery ties into the theme of the episode. So testimony, uh, who is to all intensity, the villain of the piece, we think is the villain of the piece to, to begin with, is just gathering memories so that people can be remembered uh, and you can have a, a tribute and a recognition of someone when they died and all their memories are stored. And last episode, I also talked about Moffat riffing on a lot of Christmas stories. So obviously we've got Dickens in Christmas Carol, we've got C.S. Lewis. And what he's riffing on here, it's a lot more subtle than some of those others, but he's riffing on It's a Wonderful Life, which is a very popular Christmas film. And that's all about a man at the point of suicide, realising the impact that he's had on others and deciding to continue living. And that's really what we're talking about here is Hartnell, the Hartnell Doctor and the Capaldi Doctor thinking, is it worth going on? Uh, and then coming to the realisation that, yes, they need to continue and, and go on their journey. And if that's not a good message for Christmas, I don't know what is. So that's that's my first point. Second point is, yes, this absolutely is a multi-doctor story, and I won't hear a, a word against it. So, I'm, Joe, stop shaking your head. It is. So I know there's a... <laughs> it's very off-putting when you're just sitting here with Joe shaking his head at you. Uh, and I know there is a lot of negative response because of David Bradley's Doctor, um, and I don't think it's about the portrayal. It's about the character that he's given. Um, but I would turn around to you and say, look at Richard Herndall in The Five Doctors, is that a true reflection of Hartnell? No, it isn't. Is he sexist? Uh, yes, he very much is. First thing he does when he walks in the TARDIS is tells Tegan to go and make, make refreshments for him, packs her off straight away. But does anyone complain about that? No, they don't. So Just, why just they because just... they're as unbearable as each other, that doesn't yeah, cancel nobody, them out. But nobody tries to cancel Richard Herndall from the five doctors. So why do we try to cancel David Bradley? So not having it. Um Dave Bradley's in a similar vein. He is a slightly different, yeah, he is a different take on the first Doctor, and we know that. Um, but he is actually only exaggerating what we saw in the 60s. The Doctor did say that he would give Susan a smack bottom, just as he does to Bill, and I'd rather Bill's response to that than uh, than Susan's. Um, and equally, even the clip that we see at the beginning of the episode, what's Hartnell doing? He's chiding Polly for bringing him his coat. He's not speaking to Ben. He's saying, come on, get my coat. He is quite innately sexist. I know he's lost, got lots of good points, but and that's what we're playing up to. And yes, a lot of it is done for comic effects, and I get that. And we're highlighting the difference in 1960s sensibilities and modern day sensibilities. But I think it's quite funny, um, and it works for those two characters. And Bradley isn't just played for laughs. He has lots of times that he comes to realisations that Capaldi's Doctor hasn't. He recognises the asymmetrical face of testimony and knows there's something going on. He absolutely punctures Capaldi's pomposity in his sonic sunglasses and his electric guitar. So equally, you know, there's there's plenty of Mickey taking on on both sides, both sides of it. But ultimately, he's there to kind of give texture to that argument about, you know, do we continue with our lives? Uh, and I love the the counterpoint of those two. I think they work really well together. He's he's humorous, but he's also deadly calm and serious. So I think I think David Bradley gives a bravado performance. And my third reason for recommending this is it's just an amazing adventure in time and space. We start off at the South Pole. We go to a beautifully designed spaceship. We go to a World War I trenches. We go to center of the universe overrun by Daleks. Um, I'd often thought that a kind of Christmas armistice 1914 would make a great setting for a Doctor Who story. But like when you talk about, you know, would World War II, would Nazis work in Doctor Who? I thought it was probably something that you couldn't do, and certainly not if the Doctor intervened to, to allow the kind of German and English troops to come together and play football. But that doesn't happen here. The Doctor's an onlooker. 
And what, what the importance of that is, is it helps the um, Hartnell doctor or the Bradley doctor, the first doctor, to realise that a Capaldi doctor is not a doctor of war. He's a doctor in a time of war and he helps people. Um, and again, that's a lovely realisation. So we get you know, full journey through time and space. We also get a lot of riffing on the history of Doctor Who. I mean, what other Doctor Who story would have the balls to start with previously on Doctor Who 709 episodes ago? <laughs> I mean, if that is not a laugh out loud moment, I don't know what is. And obviously we get the recreation of the 10th planet scenes. We get Lethbridge Stewart or a Lethbridge Stewart relative, which I think Mark Gatiss does a damn good job on. And I'm sure Joe will have some things to say on that. But I think he portrays him very well. And we get to say goodbye to Bill Clower and Nardole. So I think Twice Upon a Time is beautiful for those reasons. And I dare anyone to argue with me. I'll argue with you. This episode was not supposed to exist. Like, there wasn't supposed to be a Christmas special. So this was sort of hastily written because Chris Chibnall wasn't ready to take over the show. And you really can tell this feels like Moffat running on the spot. And I'm going to argue your point uh, saying that there isn't an antagonist in this, that it doesn't make a difference. It does. It's very boring because of it. It is a lot of sort of talking and not a lot of suspense and not a lot of action and not a lot of all those things that we love in Doctor Who. It's something that um, bothers me about in the Forest of the Night as well, where there isn't really a threat in that, aside from the environment. Um, I do think that the first Doctor is hideously misremembered. It's like a grotesque parody of what we think is the first Doctor. And Bradley does. He just plays what's on the page. But it's so embarrassing in places. The bit about Bill being bisexual, the sexist bits, all of that, the sunglasses. Like, oh, it's just agonising to watch. Um, it's a moot, on the fence, by the way. Jeff. It's a moot point, but the Christmas Day truce was better executed in the Sainsbury's advert than it was in uh, the Doctor Who special, which I'm sure had a bigger budget. And Jesus Christ, that last speech, that agonising last speech about avocado pears and being kind. When did we ever get to this, where the Doctor literally has this just hideous monologue at the end of his life. I thought Matt Smith was bad enough, but this feels like it goes on forever. When David Tennant was stumbling around that council estate in the end of time, I was literally screaming at the telly, why don't you just die already? <laughs> um, and in Twice Upon a Time, I was just like, why don't I just die? Because <laughs> the lines aren't even great. Capaldi does great. When Jodie Whittaker comes out and just goes, oh, Matt, you know, what is it she says? Brilliant. Brilliant. Brilliant or amazing or something. I'm just like, yeah, let's go. Jesus, kick out that old git and let's get, <laughs> let's get going. <laughs> I don't know. It 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 just feels like a lot of nothing. I think bringing Bill into it guts um, the Doctor Falls. Um, I, I, but it's I, not Bill. It's the memory of Bill. It's testimony. It's an avatar. We see that really clearly early on. But She's it's an avatar played, to represent it's played as if it's Bill. Well, it's played as if it's Bill in the story. Yeah. And Moffat does this a lot. You know, he, he I'm going to kill off the companion. I'm going to do something terrible to them. And then he doubles back on it. And and it loses any of the dramatic worth it might have had. I, I don't like Clara, so I don't want to see her again. I was happy to see Nardole. That was quite nice. Um, I don't mind Mark Gates' performance in this. I think he's pretty good. Um, but it, again, it's more of uh, Moffat's obsession with the Brigadier. Um, and I'm not sure why I say I just don't think it should exist this episode and it feels and it feels like it shouldn't exist it's just it's like a a breath 
between like the end of the Doctor Falls and um, the woman who fell to earth, and uh, it's just an hour long breath. That's a, a bit tedious to endure. Well, let's but... move on swiftly. From Sorry, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Jonathan Jason. After you, Johnny. Okay. Well, um, this, this I'm going to start name dropping really sort of egregiously. So, so brace yourselves, because uh, I'm I know Stephen quite well. I've known him for about twenty years. And I think about 2008, when he just got the job, we went for a curry to celebrate or something. And um, we were just sort of joking about coming up with ideas. And I said, and Nick Pegg was sitting next to him, he'll be my witness. And I said, oh, you should do something about um, the armistice and the first war. That'd be cool. And Stephen goes, if I'm still around in 2016, kill me. <laughs> so, but eventually, I think that just sort of went, I don't think he consciously remembered that because obviously he was too drunk to remember anything. But um, I think that might have, that idea might have been seeded. And the other idea, I think um, about five, about 2016, should we say, uh, we doing the same thing again. And me and Nev are talking about this idea that Douglas Adams had had for Doctor Who that had never been able to write, uh, where... Douglas Adams' idea was that the Doctor arrives in a situation and he just constantly assumes that there's evil at work and there's a threat to the planet because that's what always happens. So he's going, oh, there must be a sinister thing here. There's a spaceship attacking. And again, Stephen went, that's the worst idea I've ever heard for the Doctor story. <laughs> in and yet... I'll write it. And yet, and yet twice upon a time is that story. It is the Doctor assuming that everything is threatening in some way and there's an evil plan when there isn't it's just it is that it is finally the douglas adams story um and two more things is uh uh i i obviously i make up ideas to talk two stories myself and one idea i had years ago was a thing called um father christmas where um there's a knock on the tardis door and it opens and this sort of old guy comes in and the doctor goes, Dad. It's, the, it's about the doctor, his father, arriving in the TARDIS. And they have, a, have an adventure a bit like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where the dad is this sort of grumpy Sean Connery figure. And I'm going to go... Will you write that, please? Well, no, I can't because Twice Upon a Time has already done it. That is... Yeah, this, that badly. Is... You could do it well. <laughs> well. Well, maybe. I mean, what I also... Two tiny details. So I like that um, in A Christmas Carol, which I gather you're not keen on, but it has the bit where um, the young Sardic sees what his future self is to become and decides, and that affects his outlook and changes it. And Twice Upon a Time is doing that story again, because it's the young Doctor seeing the old Doctor's future self and going, oh, I'm going to become that person, or I don't want to become that person. So I think that's a nice subtle sort of repeat, maybe unintentional. And you've already mentioned it, the bit where the, um, the doctor um, says that uh, Bill needs a jolly good smack bottom. Yeah. Um, now, I, I've looked at the scripts of Dalek Invasion of Earth, and that line isn't in there. Oh, that, that was an ad lib. That line was added by William Hartnell himself. Oh. So that line being in Twice Upon a Time, I mean, it's... It's a bit of a cheap joke, but that's a bit of William Hartnell's voice in the actual story. That's his his line. That's not Moffat's line or 
Whitaker's Lionel Terry Nathan. That's a little bit of William Hartnell in the story. And I love it for that. Although so I would say that it, John, you're losing it. Oh, go on. keeping it, definitely keeping it. Excellent. I would go to, on to say, though, I think that is probably the only part of William Hartnell in this story. The only line, you know. God, I just don't, he just wasn't this person. So, okay, I'm going <laughs> to shut up. <laughs> well, on that, I mean, it's also out of context in this because in The Dalek Invasion of Earth, as an ad lib from William Hartnell, it's a man admonishing his granddaughter not some random woman he's just met. <clears throat> so I don't think it fits. Um, but I do love Bill and the Doctor's reaction to it. It's like, can we never talk about this? And Bill's like, I hope we spend years <laughs> laughing about this. I love that moment. Um, you know, yeah, there is a lot wrong with Twice Upon a Time. Yes, it shouldn't exist. It was written hastily and what have you. But I'm going to argue in favour of keeping it for a number of reasons. Uh, one of which is, however badly the Doctor's sexism was overplayed in this, the fact that the first Doctor appeared at the end of The Doctor Falls um, caught me completely by surprise. And I was really excited for this Christmas special, more so than I had been since 2005, when the very fact that we were getting a Christmas special was exciting um, to get one with the first Doctor meeting the 12th Doctor. I was like, oh, this is they are great, fantastic. I love that it's going all the way back to the beginning. Fantastic. And David Bradley is superb. Uh, and, and, and I think he's probably unique in that he has now played a character. He has played the actor who played that character. And he has played the actor who has played that character playing that character <laughs> on the screen. So <laughs> I think that's... Um, I think that's I think he's great. Um, and I really liked some of his scenes, especially a scene with Bill testimony about you know, when she says, why did you run away? And oh, that's a very good question. That's really nice. I like that it's not an evil plot. I love the doctor's complete confusion at the end where it's like, well, I don't know what to do if it's not an evil plot. I think that's that's great. I really enjoyed that. Um, and. It, it got me. It absolutely got me. I didn't see it coming when the Doctor nudges things forward a bit to save the life of the two soldiers by nudging them into the Christmas truce. Um, and part of the reason that got me is because the actual story of the Christmas truce is just wonderful. You know, the reality of the situation, these two armies on either side of a huge war that had been going on for months at that point, for one day... The guys on the front line put down their guns, put down their differences, and they just enjoyed each other's company. And then the twist in the the horrible sting in the tail, of course, is that the very next day they were back to shooting at each other. But the idea of the Christmas truce, um, I really, really love that story. Um, of course, by the time the war had gone on another couple of years, it, that was never going to happen again. But that one moment is... It's a great moment in history, and I love that it was included. I don't think you could do a whole story about it. I do. I, 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 I think you could tell a brilliant story around that, and that, it feels a little gratuitous, I think. I think it's a pivotal moment of the story, so it, I think it works. It's just, I, I yeah, and as you say, it's... It years ago. Yeah, but... <laughs> But as you say, no. it's the moment where the first Doctor realises that the 12th or he's not the Doctor of War. He is a Doctor uh -oh. in War who helps people um, and does what he can. And just that little nudge 
into the Christmas truce was was really good. And Peter Capaldi plays the doctor's exhaustion and despair about the situation and the fact that his life is basically an empty battlefield because everyone he knows ages and dies and he just goes on and on and on. And he has to come to terms with actually, well, yeah, okay, we can, I can, I can do it again. But all that being said, I cannot disagree with a lot of the criticisms of it. The doctor's final speech before he regenerates is agonizing i kept waiting every time it's about to finish he then starts up again oh and this other thing and Trouble is he's got that set to walk around so he starts going upstairs walking around the libraries yeah. i'm like oh good grief and it's a tour just, of the tardis it, it's the it's the absolute nadir of the extended regeneration sequence it's like oh for god's sake just get on with it for heaven's sake <laughs> um the weird i found it slightly odd the way it was directed the regeneration where we spend a long time i mean is it rachel talele who it directed is. this her it direction is. is superb she's brilliant i i think she's great but we spend ages panning around the dark console room with the silhouette of the doctor and the ring falling off the finger as if we don't know who it's going to be and it just seems a really odd choice to do that because we all knew it was going to be jodie whittaker it had been announced it was in it was done on television it was in the press why then spend all that time before we even see her face when we know maybe on christmas day there appear i mean we're absolutely you know, wedded in this stuff aren't we i'm sure there were a proportion probably a small proportion of the audience watching on christmas day that didn't know i think you'd have to be very media blind not to have known <laughs> by that point that it was going to be jody whittaker because it was literally headline news you know for months um, so there are some odd choices in it and yeah okay the fact that it was written hastily I think it shows but I'm still going to keep it because I got excited for it I love David Bradley I think he's brilliant and I really like the Christmas truce inclusion so I don't disagree with your criticisms Joe no I just I want to make I just want to make I one cannot... more point I cannot, in good conscience, jettison this one. Because it's going through anyway, but a word of caution from me then as well. And that is, what on earth do the kids think about this? Like, it is so slow. It's so reflective. It's effectively about two old men at the end of their lives. You know, the Doctor feels exhausted. There's no sort of zest or zeal or zip to any of it. Like what the kids must have been like when Jodie came along at the end and Atardis started exploding and she's smiling. She's actually bloody smiling. They must have been like, yeah, let's go. We're back having an adventure again. I, I mean, that's a that's another criticism I've got. And I mentioned this on my cliffhangers thread as well, is that every bloody time Moffat writes a regeneration, he crashes the TARDIS. Yeah. But it's kind of miserable, this, you know, and it I just is, don't, and I I, don't I, think well, I don't think this is. I'll this throw is... at you, Joe. This is Christmas. A Christmas Carol by Dickens ain't exactly a barrel of laughs. It yeah, has no. spectacular highs in it, a Christmas Carol. Especially that's what, that's what Dickens does, isn't it? He takes you high and then drags you down again. Um, I don't know. I I, I, I think, actually, Joe, I, I think like... you make a fair point there. And I think, to my mind, the more I look at it, back at it, especially with the Capaldi era, I think that if I'm honest, Moffat lost sight of the fact that this is really supposed to be for kids as well. 
But you said I, there, Johnny, about Doctor Who fans. I feel like this is a point where we've lost the general audience as well, because I don't think the general audience switch on Doctor Who to see two exhausted old men holding back death like I, that. I, I, I think there's certainly, um, I think the under 10s had sort of gone yeah. more or less by this point, um, because it was just too dark. And in Capaldi's year, it gets quite slow. Anyway, sorry. Right, should we pull us back on? <laughs> yes, we've we've wandered off off tangent before, right. but it's Joe's going through. to convince everybody too much to Madness, change their mind. But it's going we through. We are staying yeah. with twice upon a time staying in. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll knock it out in round two. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny, we are back to you to pick your second choice. Okay, well, I'm going to be um, controversially positive about um, the time of the Doctor. Um, uh, three things I love about it. Uh, I think it's a great story for kids. I think um, it has all, it has monsters galore. And I think kids, that is what they prioritize about going. It has um, Daleks, silence, wooden side men, some tons, weeping angels, and it's just, Full on and gorgeous for that. I think that works incredibly well about it. Um, I think this is the first iteration of the Doctor being the sort of the lone soldier defending a town, which obviously then becomes in um, World Enough and Time, the Doctor Falls, it becomes uh, it is revisited, but this is the first time. Um, I would love what I appreciate as someone who's been writing these Doctor Who books over the years by by Doctor Who Topia, by the Monster Vault, is having spent hours trying to understand what the silence's plan is and what the what the difference between silence will fall and the silence and the order of the silence is. Um I am probably the only person who appreciates the time of the Doctor for actually it does actually explain everything. It does make as much sense as anything else in Doctor Who. So I'm not saying it makes complete sense, but by the low bar, which Doctor Who normally takes for <laughs> making sense, it, it does actually pay off everything that's been set up, which is an ex which is an expected achievement. Um, but those, those are sort of fan reasons. The, re the reason I um, will always love it is because um, uh, when it was on, my wife was in labour. She just went into labour about two hours before, so, um, I was I, so. I, I, my memory of watching it is every, every sort of three minutes, um, my wife screaming basically, <laughs> which I think some fans probably did when they're watching it as well. But, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, but um, it was a sort of thing of um, without wishing, I, I can be more curious at the same time. Going, uh, my my son wants to. He wants to come out and watch Doctor Who because he <laughs> he wants to see the new Doctor. He wants to you know, see the monsters. I don't um, want to be so, disingenuous. You had a little peek at time of the Doctor and then pop back <laughs> in again. You know? Yeah, um, but no, I, I, I so I associate with that. Now that's sort um, this is sort of dad emotion, but that's such a sort of an emotional and magical time in your life, and the fact that Doctor Who was part of it, um, and a, a sweet, silly, frothy. Ultra Christmassy, um, slightly messy, slightly indulgent, but um, 
uh, any Doctor Who story which is associated with that is going to be a thumbs up for me. So, um, you know, it'd be awful if, you know, if I if he, my wife had gone to labour during in the forest of the night, it'd be like, oh god, <laughs> oh god, you know, late Ray Moore, oh god. Um, uh, but no, this I think it's a. Uh, it's harmless. I mean, it's also it's got the problem that it comes after the day of the Doctor, and that was, um, you know, world shatteringly a huge event, you know, and it didn't drop any balls. It was, it pleased everyone. It was an extraordinary achievement, um, and it's like, and now after we've had the A side, and here's the B side, and you go, well, it's never going to be as good as the day of the Doctor, but I think. Um, on reflection, there's a huge amount of love in that. Okay. Well, Johnny, I'm going to agree with you. I think Time of the Doctor is a great episode. I think you're absolutely right. I've kind of written down as one of my notes that it finds the right balance. So you're right, you've listed off all the aliens that are in it. We go to the find minutiae again of trying to fill in the dots even to the extent that we see what was in room 11 in the god complex and the doctor saw the crack so we we answer every little and they're all quite small throwaway lines but it's all in there and it's surprising how much they pack in hang on a second um, may i disagree with you for one second please because in order to pay off all those plots we have to have the doctor and clara come away from the planet christmas to sit down with tasha lem for a five extended five minute scene where they tick off every unresolved arc plot from the Steve. Oh yes, you remember Madame Cavarian? Well, that was that. Remember the <laughs> silence? Well, they were a church. Remember the? Oh, it's so terribly done. Sorry, please continue. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think it's quite elegantly done. I love oh. the fact that everything gets gets answered, whether you find it satisfactory or not. At least we've gone to the extent of trying to put a bow on this present. Um, and it, of course, it's a regeneration story, so the stakes are high, probably higher because, and I did find this a little bit odd, that we suddenly introduced the fact that this is the Doctor, what he thinks is the final regeneration. Um, that was a little bit crowbarred in, probably at about the 30-minute mark, that we suddenly find that out because David Tennant took up two. So that that's a little bit odd that that suddenly gets brought in at that point. But nevertheless, we've got all this high stakes we've got spaceships we've got every alien going um but at the heart of this story it's a very small story about the doctor protecting a town and i think it gets the balance right between those two um the original russell's original idea for um end of time was going to be a small story there's a doctor on a spaceship with one family saving that family and sacrificing himself to save that one family on a spaceship obviously as we've already discussed he didn't go down that route he went large instead so this kind of revisits that same idea that this is quite a low-key story. It's the Doctor looking after after one small village on on one uh, world and and uh, protecting it throughout his life because we we see him age before us. And I think I think it's a tour force uh, performance by Matt Smith. I think he pretty much shows every nuance of the Doctor. We get the madcap at the beginning running into the Dalek and Cyberman spaceship. We get the silly comedy bit with him going to dinner with uh, with Clara's family and being naked and Nan wanting to play Twister with him whilst he's naked. Uh, <laughs> lovely Sheila Reed. Um, then we get the... the <laughs> Joe's pointing at me. Um, we oh, got the point Jason. He looks as pained as I do. <laughs> we... 
we get the flirty bit with Tasha Lem. What did Toby call it last week? The sexy wexy bit. Um, <laughs> but I mean, the doctor does actually say he talks to Clara afterwards and we realise what he's doing is a facade. He's not really playing sexy wexy with her at all. It's just because he wants to know what she knows. So I think we get all of that. We get him grandstanding on top of the watchtower, but we also get him really calm and quiet in those moments in his barn when he's aged. Um, so I think we get we get the full range of, of Matt Smith. Uh, and visually, it looks lovely. I think um, Stephen Moffat said he actually wants to film a Christmas episode in a proper village rather than sets. And this is in a um, it's in a, in a mock German village somewhere in, in Wales, uh, and it, it looks lovely. So I think it's quite, it's a visual feast as well. So I'm I'm voting to keep it in, but I am feeling that my two co-panellists are not going to be quite as generous. No, if that makes you think that, let's go to Jason. <laughs> right. I am going to say, again, I can't argue with some parts of it because yeah, it looks gorgeous and the village setting is beautiful. Um, and yeah, I, I absolutely love how it looks and how Christmassy it feels. Uh, I mean, you can't argue with uh, with Johnny's uh, thing about, you know, the, the association with an important, wonderful moment in his life. Absolutely. That's fine. And again, you know, no problem. But I think this is a mess of a conclusion to the Matt Smith era. I believe that the plan was to do a season or at least multiple episodes of the Doctor defending Trenzalore. And condensing it to an hour harms it to the extent that we have the Doctor and Clara arrive, then they go somewhere else, then Clara goes back, then she goes back, then she goes back home, then she goes back, she's back and forth all over the place. It's a mess. Tasha Lem is a River Song substitute. Um, brilliantly portrayed by Orla Brady, but, you know, still. At, uh, the, and I'm sorry, the nudity gags. What the hell were they <laughs> doing in Doctor Who? That is just ridiculous, especially when, you know, the Doctor is I'm naked because I'm going to church and I've got hologram clothes, but no one else can see them. The Doctor and Clara arrive on Trenzalore and end up rolling around in the snow in hologram clothes. So it's kind of Stephen Moffat having his cake and eating it by having two people rolling around naked, but they're not naked, but they are naked, but they're not because we can see their clothes. But then everyone else on the church can see through them anyway. So who cares? The whole nudity stuff is, ugh, no, I, I don't As think- the doctor that... says though, Jason, we're all naked underneath. Yeah underneath we don't, <laughs> i don't think doctor who is a place for nudity gags i'm sorry i don't think it fits at all um what the just, hell are you doing on this podcast then it just seems <laughs> it just seems puerile and immature um and i didn't care for it at all because there was no need for it that's the thing as well you know it, it wasn't required and i don't want to think about the doctor being naked thank you very much um, I think it probably is all it is a bit forced, but I think it's there to explain why he's got no hair later on because obviously he shaved his head for a film. Yeah, so we which does. Do... I mean, it does introduce the, the 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 quite amusing thing that at the end of it, both he and Karen Gillan are wearing wigs because they both had to shave their heads for <laughs> for movie roles that they were doing at the time. Um, but uh, no, the nudity gags, no, I don't like it. I don't really care for the chucking all the monsters into it bit because we've mm, done that we already. That. Uh, Stephen Moffat just loves chucking all the aliens together, even though there's no reason for them all to be 
together and cooperating with each other. And it leads into the most uh, egregious example almost of the thing that really bugs me throughout Doctor Who in the new era in particular. Just shoot the bastard. <laughs> yeah, I am really not taken with the Doctor standing unarmed in front of a whole group of aliens that could <laughs> kill him in seconds and just going, you can't do it, can you? The Daleks are hovering with their mothership over him. They could obliterate the entire surface of the planet. The Doctor <laughs> wouldn't have a chance to answer the question and bring the Time Lords through because he would be atomized in a fraction of a second and they still can't do it. And it's You just... would be ending Doctor Who there, Jason. Yeah, but this is what I've... Are they nervous because the they don't know if he's got a plan? It doesn't matter if you can obliterate him in 0. 0.3 milliseconds. It was the same problem I had with the end of um, Forest of um, the Forest of the Dead when the Vashta Narada backed off because he told them to read up on it. Oh, I you love that his, scene. But you can strip his flesh in less than a second. He'd be dead. It wouldn't matter if he had a plan because he'd be dead. But and he looks same, so he, cool. So who cares? You, know, you could cool. obliterate him just and and so and I, you know. The arguments about things, it, it's almost like Stephen Moffat constantly not killing anybody and bringing them back when he has killed them. Because Doctor Who is about happy endings and escapism. Fine, give them their happy endings by just not killing them in the first place. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, we have to have the Doctor can't be obliterated by the Daleks because that would end the series. Absolutely. So don't have him standing under a mothership going, you can't do it, can you? Without a single <laughs> weapon in his hand. That's just terrible i i didn't care for that at all and again it's a protracted regeneration he does a massive regeneration that blasts all the alien ships to pieces on top of that tower and then it turns out he's just gone back to his young face and he's just waiting around in the tardis for clara to come back so he can have a bit of a speech with her uh, and then just oh i'm peter capaldi suddenly it's a great speech though jason it is and and I he does he delivers it brilliantly that's what he does and Jacob Dubman say, delivers it especially well. I have to say, I nicked part of that speech because uh, a few years later, I was made redundant from a job. And on my last day, I posted on the work Facebook group, basically modified that last speech about we're all different people and we've got to keep going and remembering who we used to be. And I will always remember this. Um, so, you know, there's some gorgeous dialogue in it and wonderful moments, but it just for me is a mess of things being chucked in it's got the doctor being a bit of a lech you know emergency or my boyfriend oh ding dong well i'll glance at a manual oh for god's sake please <laughs> let's let's not let's not do this let's not Joe. do this with the doctor hello, hello. Uh, yes I, I feel like this is the pandorica opens done but really shit um so you do have a bit with the doctor railing at the sky that was done brilliantly in the pandorica opens but it's done terribly here and i'll come back to that in a second you got all the monsters coming together like in the pandorica opens but it was done exceptionally well there and you've got the culmination of well it's an era here but it's a season there and it's done amazingly well in the pandorica opens of that pre-title sequence but here you say it's elegant i think it's possibly the most inelegant culmination of an era i've ever seen that that tick box scene is really badly done but actually i've got a personal story to tell as well but it's unfortunately not as charming as johnny's and that is the end where the doctor with about 15 layers of latex on his face i, I just can't do old age makeup well he looks hideous doesn't he and he's struggling out and he's going to the top of that bell tower and he's throwing out regeneration energy and destroying entire dalek armies 
I was watching this with my family and I could feel the collective like breath being taken whilst that was all going on. And I turned around and looked at them and they all just burst into laughter. And I thought that was the point. I'll stop watching Doctor Who with my family. I can't take it anymore. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. Um, it's so indulgent. It's so messy. <sighs> There's some nice bits. I like handles. Handles is done brilliantly. I think the the emotion around that Cyberman head is is sort of judged better than pretty much anything else here. I do like the final scene and Amy coming in weirdly moved me because I never liked Amy, mm. but I thought that was done really really well. But uh, it, it, it's a mess, so no, I, I'm kicking it out. I'm afraid. So we so got two two. Sorry, I was with you, but no, it's uh, Johnny votes. I'm with Johnny, so you two have voted out. So unfortunately, time of the Doctor is the second one to fall. Okay, so we are back to Jason for your second nomination. My second nomination, I'm going to head back to the Jodie Whittaker era. And I'm going to say why I love Resolution. Because I feel I should be positive after just tearing the time of the Doctor to shreds. Um, I thought Resolution was excellent. I really enjoyed that as a New Year's Day uh, episode. Daleks do not work in large numbers, as far as I'm concerned. The more Daleks you have, the more ludicrous the situation has to be to explain why they're not just shooting everybody under the sun and just getting on with the thing and being an unstoppable army of killing machines. A single Dalek done well is a marvellous threat. Rob Shearman did it superbly in Dalek. I don't think anyone's ever bettered that, to be perfectly honest with you. He did brilliantly with Dalek. And here, Chris Chibnall has sort of taken that as a sort of inspiration, I think, and gone back to it. We have one Dalek that has to put itself back together over the first half of the episode. Uh, the way it takes over um, Lynn is a nice little addition to Dalek lore, the fact that the creature itself can actually do something like that. I love the redesigned recon Dalek Scout because... I think I think a lot of people miss the point of that redesign because loads of people I've seen online have said, oh, this is what recon Daleks look like. No, this is what a Dalek cobbled together in a human factory that vaguely resembled a Dalek shell. It wasn't this is the actual design that left Scaro, you know, and I really like that design. The one Dalek is a real threat. Now, I have seen criticism of the threat being portrayed in that everything everybody the dalek kills is introduced in the scene it kills them <laughs> so the dalek doesn't actually kill anyone we give a toss about it just kills people that we've just met but at least but, it's killing people right i don't think the daleks killing have killed people for that, years that sequence with the army attacking the dalek is absolutely brilliant i love it it's you know it's just about a minute long um you know a bunch of soldiers and i one of the things that gets criticised and doesn't make an awful lot of sense is the dissolution of unit in this episode because it's old unit has been closed down because of funding issues and what have you. And that became a plot point in flux, which frankly didn't make a jot of sense there either. Um, but I think for this episode, it was absolutely essential because unit know what Daleks are. If unit had engaged the Dalek, it would have been less satisfying but this lot it's the regular army they turn up they go what the bloody hell is this did it just speak 
when they realize that they can't actually damage it and then it unleashes all its rockets and the commander just goes <laughs> run that's an order i mean that sequence is brilliant the way it's done um visually get a real sense of the power of the dalek weaponry as well just from silly little things like the fact that they shake the camera when it fires its gun to give you an impression of the of the power so i really really like that a single dalek is a threat and yeah once again yes a single dalek should be a threat and it takes a lot to actually trash it the other thing i'm going to say uh i quite like in this and i know not everybody does and it does suffer from one of chris chibnall's um big flaws as a writer i think is the bit with ryan's dad and everyone's reaction to him and the conversations they have with him one of the things that i've commented on a previous podcast about with chris chibnall is he writes superb character moments but you can hear the brakes squealing on the plot as everything stops so that we can have these character moments rather than actually having them generally blended into the plot but I think that the way people react to Ryan's dad turning up here is great. Graham is obviously protective of Ryan because his dad has buggered off and done the whole, hey, I'm back in your life. Well, actually, no, you haven't done enough here to warrant it. A lot of people don't like it, but I really like the scene with Ryan and his dad in the cafe where Ryan tells his dad what he wants his dad to say. What he thinks he should say and how he's feeling. I think that's really nicely done. And I even like the doctor's just casual, go, oh, you didn't turn up to his grand's funeral. Which immediately puts him on the back foot and says, ah, okay, so even this strange person I've met before has heard something about me. Oh, crap. I've got a lot of work to do here. And he does try. He does try. And he has Chekhov's microwave with him as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's so, so subtle, isn't it? The way he carries oh, it around with him from Yeah, absolutely. Scene. There's, you know... Um, with a flashing I don't, arrow I don't on think... it saying plot point, plot point. <laughs> yeah. I honestly, I don't think Chris Chibnall is great at plot at all. I think some of his plots are absolutely dire. Um, his character he's, moments he's are good really, at spectacle really good. though isn't he? he's, he's good, good at... at spectacle and i love the fact that this one this episode makes one dalek a real threat because we've had repeatedly we've had monsters ganging up on the doctor and not actually just shooting the doctor at this point the only time the doctor actually spends any time standing in front of the dalek it's made clear it's literally only just rebuilt itself and its weaponry is not active yet so that's the only reason it doesn't just kill her straight away and they actually explain that which makes more sense than having the doctor stand in front of a bunch of fully armed daleks going come on then and them just going actually let's have a chat and we'll explain our plans and we won't kill you and uh, we'll get distracted at the last minute by something so i i love resolution i think it was great okay, okay. i'm going to jump in oh go on johnny okay, okay well um I'll be brief. I'm always very brief. Uh, I, know, I noticed Jason didn't mention the, the, the most famous scene from the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Touchfully ignored it, I think, is the expression. We're just going to have to talk to each other, Johnny. Yeah, we're just going to talk to Which, um, <laughs> I mean, there, there's 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 several reasons that I, I'm, I'm not keen on that scene. I don't think it's very well written or very well played. But I think it's, it's at exactly the wrong point in the episode. Because we've just had the Dalek has taken over GCHQ. It's disconnected the internet. Dun, 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 terrible thing happening. Oh, no. And then this jokey scene undermines the threat. And I think that's, it's not, 
contrasting. It's not doing, sometimes you throw in a bit of comedy as a contrast to the drama and it works. But here you're just going, it's a fuss about nothing. It's just, oh, people having to talk to each other. So I, I think that was a huge misstep. Um, uh, see, I, I have a different view on that scene, mm -hmm. if I may, um, because I see that as, yeah, we know there's a threat, but most other people in the world don't yet. This one Dalek is not known about. No one knows what's actually going on. And I think that's a very, very true response. Whatever is actually going on, if all the Wi-Fi went down suddenly, families would be a bit kind of, oh, God, what have they done now, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, but they don't react as if it's a threat. It's just... But like they don't know it's a threat. Irritating inconvenience. But they don't know it's a threat. That's oh, the whole point. They have no idea that an alien right. creature has just attacked GCHQ and taken out all the country's oh, Wi-Fi. All I can't they know is that their Wi-Fi has gone the down. the most contentious point. I cannot <laughs> well, we haven't got there yet. Jim. I mean, I love also, this episode, Jason, but that's a terrible joke. Yeah. It's a terrible. It's a terrible joke. It <laughs> is a, a terrible, terrible joke. Scene. But I don't. I don't think it's. I don't think it's as out of place or unnatural as is being suggested. Because it's, for it's everybody even... who doesn't know, why would they think? Oh, there's a terrible threat going on when their Wi-Fi goes down. My Wi-Fi goes down periodically. I don't think. Oh, a Dalek must have appeared and <laughs> yeah, attacked I... GCHQ. We're all in terrible danger. I just think. Oh, for well, fuck's sake! Should, I can't. All right. I can't record better. my podcast now or something <laughs> like that. So you know, it's. I think you could you could have fun by taking the climax of any Doctor Who story and having a bystander going, "Oh, it's probably nothing." And I think, <laughs> and I, I, I think, um, whilst that might be fun, I think that's it's it's, it's on the wrong place. Um, that's my my, and the other point is you mentioned the scene with Ryan and his dad in the cafe, which, um, I you I think it's perfectly well written and play, well played. But I, I just remember watching that on New Year's Day and I start looking at my phone. <laughs> and then I start messaging Joe Lister going, get on with it. When are they going to get out of that cafe? Um, <laughs> and my son starts picking up a book and starts reading or starts doing something else as well. And it's like, you've, you've, you're doing one thing at a time. And when we start that scene, we know what that scene is going to be doing for the next two or three minutes. Um, and there's a Dalek on the loose. You know, the Dalek's got Charlotte Ritchie from Ghosts, and it's taken his, his <laughs> possessed her, and it's doing a terrible thing. It's killing characters that we've barely met. Please tell me you think all that stuff's great. Yeah, that's all good. That's all going at the same time. And it's like, you can't, I'm not sure you can pause it for that long. What you need is um, Ryan and his dad exploring a dark tunnel together, thinking there's a Dalek on the loose, and they're having that conversation as they're walking through the spooky tunnels. But then they just do what they did in the Saranga conundrum and just stand still for five minutes in a tunnel and talk oh, about it. Another classic, Rod. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you need something else going. You need some uh, something else going on. There needs to be another sort of element of the story. And the fact that they are just sitting in a cafe on the opposite sides of a table to each other is... I don't know. It's, it doesn't seem very... Um, it did stop the story for me. And Hang I on a second. It, it just did. just, just like those characters sitting around a table when time of the Doctor, bringing up all the plot points of the era <laughs> for 10 minutes. Sorry. Yeah, sorry, we've ruled it. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where are we going with it? I think, I, think I, I mean, I agree. As I say, Chris Chibnall does kind of grind the plot to a halt so he can have his character. I, mean, so I think his, um, his era of Doctor Who has gone more for sort of the more naturalistic 
conversations between the characters and the way they're portrayed and i think it's done very well but i think it loses the kind of the heightened yeah for sure stuff that you actually need in a fantasy sci-fi series that like people Doctor have come Who. to expect as this, well this is, yeah it's not a soap it's not a yeah that that kind of drama it's kind of fantastical situations so it there should be a little sort of heightened edge to everybody's performance i think and it's not there necessarily so well, yeah the other, I, the, other, the other thing i'd say is i've i've seen three or four 80s science fiction films which have this sort of broad storyline of um an alien is possessing people and hopping from body to body um and which is fine so you know you can nick from anywhere and that's a, a sort of classic one but i think this has a fundamental problem for the first half if it's trying to find reasons to keep the doctor away from the story and you know we've all lamented the colin baker era and stuff going get out of the tardis meet people do something and this is a story where the doctor is in the tardis for the first half of the story i mean she's met the characters and then she's in the control room dealing with a force field and phoning unit and stuff and it's like but this is this is you know her name is in the title this is the doctor who show if you need to structure it so that the doctor is doing something the doctor needs to be working stuff out on the trail of the dalek um so even though there are things i love in the story i do love like i said charlotte Ritchie. i love the dalek on her shoulder and possessing her i think that's wonderful i think the new design of it the, the sort of um knock together rusty dalek is is fun and stuff like that that'll that's all good um but i think I don't know. It's it's one of those ones where I can see how I'd re how I just how I'd fix it, and that just bugs me all the way through. So I'm gonna now that goes that goes down the chute. I'm afraid. Well, I'm gonna jump in, and I'm also straight down that chute. So I've done the I've been watching these for this podcast. I've been watching the Christmas specials, and last week we did a load more RTD and Stephen Moffat Christmas specials, and there's good and there's bad in there. But then coming to this, this just felt so leaden and clunky. I just could not get past the clunky moments. And the more I saw irritants in there, the more things irritated me. <laughs> and I just couldn't get past them. So I mean, just how come a Dalek, which is an organic being, is cut into three pieces, buried in the ninth century, and then in the 21st century, it manages to come back together again because of ultraviolet light. <laughs> Don't really it's, get how it's we... an alien. They just happen to do that sort of thing. That is just a bit nonsense and we have already established in the magician's apprentice and the witch's familiar that the Dalek creatures don't actually die. What when they're cut into three? Well, why not? There are creatures mm. that can be cut into three and survive. Mm. Okay, yeah. okay. Put a sponge through a, <laughs> through, a <laughs> through a sieve and it will reform. <laughs> yeah, but I don't want to think about that when I watch it. Just doesn't make much sense. There's no, there isn't even a, a pseudo explanation for it. It's just wasn't oh, Colony soft like a load of snakes that comes together. We're not in discussing self. that, Joe. We're, well, no, no, but I'm just saying that's an alien. This. this is an Bring alien. Why can't the rules point. be the same? Rubbish. Jason, I hear what you're saying. And the scene with the Dalek massacring the army, yes, that looks fantastic. Can't argue with that. Wayne Yip's direction, beautiful, looks really good, establishes the threat. But visually, I'm watching it as a 
regular audience member with how come the Dalek can completely annihilate that army. And then in the very next scene, the doctor very slowly slides on the floor past her and it's firing at her, but misses every single time. I know we said about missing before, but the juxtaposition of those two scenes, one straight after the other, when we've seen it completely destroy an army and then very slowly fires at Jodie as she slides across the floor. <laughs> she's even given it warning. That's what she's going to do. And it misses her every time. That's just can't get past that. It's called you resolution. You can't watch many Dalek stories in. You know? They all have that problem. It, but it's so laboured. At least it's so firing well made. his gun. They never the, fire their guns in the Moffat stories. But it's so all. well made by the army scene and then so completely pulled away the next scene. It's called resolution. So obviously the resolution is Ryan and his father. There's no other resolution in this. I'm used to Moffat. You know, having a theme and tying a whole episode together with you, like it or love it, he's very clever that it, there is a theme throughout the thing. There's no resolution in the Dalek storyline. Maybe we should have had the Tim Shaw storyline, God help us, um, <laughs> in this episode, because then at least there would have been resolution for Graham with Tim Shaw and resolution with Ryan and his father. Thematically, that would have made more sense. There's no sense calling it resolution with the Dalek plotline. Just doesn't work. So that irritates me. Um Unit being disbanded. Yeah, that's a great idea. We ruin it because the doctor phones um, David Walliams pretty much from Little Britain. The woman saying computer says no. She put, even puts the silly voice on, say, oh, no, unit has been disbanded. It's just awful. The Wi-Fi scene, let's not even go there. <laughs> um, a police woman that watches her colleague getting pulled into a car and murdered, sits oh, and goes, that flipping That is hilarious heck. when his legs are hanging out the window. Oh, yeah, but she sits there and goes, flipping heck, it's like Strike Me Pink from Blooming Black Orchid. It's just awful. The doctor <laughs> says she has serious tech skills. Yes, that's with a Z. I mean, talk about cringe. Joe, you mentioned <laughs> cringe before. I was dying. The cafe scene, um, I mean, we talked about the cafe scene before with Wilf and the Doctor in End Time. Beautiful. This is just torturous. It's EastEnders. Um, I'm not invested in Ryan. His story doesn't do anything for me. I don't think he's the greatest companion. Um, so I just don't feel her. Sorry. Oh, you're mad. You need to find a bit more fun in your life, you know. There's absolute fun and sort of New Year's spectacle going on in this episode. Fun? Oh, it's marvellous. You know, you said about Jodie being... I can't you being sarcastic now. No, not at all. <laughs> you got Jodie being kept out of the action. She is. I do love all those TARDIS scenes, though, because she is running them. But then it leads to that excellent confrontation with the Dalek, where she gets to be sarky as hell. And we've talked about the terrible Wi-Fi family joke, but that leads that confrontation leads up to a brilliant joke where um, she runs away, <laughs> the Dalek's shooting at her, the music's rising, and then she just sort of goes, and the music stops, and she just goes... How long's a rail? And she just punches the 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 mad melodramaticness of all of it. It's very very funny. Um, the scene with Ryan and his dad. It does go on too long. Um, it it's a very personal scene to me because I've had that moment with my dad and it played out almost beat for beat. So I was watching you there talking about that being ridiculously unrealistic. Well, that I've been in that scene in a situation like that with my dad. And I think I he gets think he gets the emotion of it, the sort of the subtle emotion of it. And there's nothing wrong with that. We've had so much melodramatic emotion in the previous eras. Actually showing somebody that's not coping with a, a dysfunctional relationship with their father in a subtle way, I think it's really beautifully done. It is too long, but I really like that scene because I can see me in it. 
Um, I love the fact that the Dalek is beaten into shape out of Sheffield Steel, which is an exact copy of the sequence where she makes a sonic screwdriver in the uh, woman who fell to earth. Like you said, Jason, the bit with the army is absolutely spectacular. I love the microwave. Jesus Christ. So many Doctor Who's have had ridiculous resolution. The fact that I can see what's happening throughout the episode, it doesn't spoil my enjoyment at all. Um, I think it does build, the threat builds throughout the story from the mutant to the Dalek to the world really, really well. Um, you said Wayne Yip's direction is great. I think this looks terrific all the way through. Charlotte Ritchie is amazing in this. Um, I don't know what the other fella's name is, the sporting guy, but I think he's great as well. Um, yeah, I just, I think, do you know what? I was in a pretty low place when this came on. I'd gone from uh, owning a house to living in somebody else's house in a single room and single for the first time in my life in about 20 years. And I was bloody miserable. And I remember Resolution came on and for one hour, I was just blown away by this mad, spectacular New Year's action special, Doctor Who. With again, and it's got a brilliant score as well. This it's got a like a very dramatic, custard score. Move over, Murray Gold, second Akinola's here. Um, oh yeah, I mean, I, it, it's not going in because we're two two, but I would absolutely put it through. I think it's, I think it's refreshing after so many dreary christmas specials where we've had to beat a doctor who story into that sort of shape to just do like a holiday just an action romp as a special uh, it's refreshing so i'd keep it well, well Sorry, can, I, can i change my vote in favor now yes no I've, I've, I've remembered something else i love about it which of is... course you can johnny that's against the, the rules you well, said no, i write is... the rules <laughs> well i'll just mention it the opening sequence which is this sort of medieval battlefield and then it's the bit of the Dalek being taken away in a bag and stuff. Um, and then it cuts to the archaeologist. I'm just going, that's bone kickers. That's the, <laughs> that, that, is, that is what bone kickers did every week. And unintentionally, or very, very intentionally, Chris Chibnall has given us Doctor Who meets bone kickers with this episode. And it's the crossover we always dreamed we could have. We could always dream. And you want to put it back in again for that reason. Yeah, I, th I think he, he's always wanted to do a crossover with Bone Kickers, and this was the this was the golden opportunity. <laughs> well, I put a Dalek in Bone Kickers, which I think would have, would have saved that show. Oh, Johnny, I loved you before, but I love you even more now. Thank I'm, you. I'm resigning my position on this. <laughs> <laughs> That's two Whitaker specials through. I never thought we'd oh. see the day. <laughs> oh. Okay. Okay. Right. We've got, let's move we've got on two left. Next. I forget where we're we've at. We've got now. two left. It's my turn first this time. So I'm going, unsurprisingly, with Stephen Moffat, and I can't believe it's not come up so far, The Snowman. And unsurprisingly, I'm going to say I love The Snowman. <laughs> there's, there's a shock. Um, lots, of, lots of reasons. If I was to be Clara um, for a day and be given the one-word challenge by Madame Vastra, my one word for The Snowman would be majestic. I think it's a beautiful episode. So my three reasons the first one is the great intelligence and i'm not talking about the great intelligence here i'm talking about stephen moffat because i'm going to call him the great intelligence oh, i think his script here is absolutely spot on um <laughs> we're in the middle of series seven and i think a lot of people are saying he was running on empty um series seven does have its issues um but i think this is an absolute corker of an episode i don't think um 
any any weariness with the show that he might have been experiencing shows. I think it's a great episode. In the cold open really sets the scene. The factory workers, um, Dr. Simeon promises they will be fed and they are fed to the snowman. It's lovely, typical Stephen Moffat word play you get right at the beginning. Great stuff in it. The scripting's lovely. You've got a staircase up to the clouds. Um, we talked about I talked about the uh, one word scene between Vastra and Clara before. Um, and that one word when she asks Clara to come up with one word that will get the doctor involved. And I was thinking, is it going to be danger, peril, threat? And the word is pond. Of course, it had to be pond because that's what brings the doctor back. But in Clara's case, she's referring to the frozen pond uh, in the governess's house where the where the governess is frozen. Lovely, very clever. Um, I love the fact that the paternosters are allegedly the inspiration for Conan Doyle, for Sherlock. And then later on, Matt Smith comes in as Sherlock. Obviously, Sherlock was huge at the time. Another Stephen Moffat uh, barnstormer at that point, and, and he really plays up to that. Um, but it also ties together really well. And this was what I meant about his kind of elegant writing beforehand. So the beginning, we get the comedy moment which strikes in the memory worm, which I do find extremely funny even though you can see it coming a mile off it's still very funny with Strax on the glove and the memory worm this terrible puppet worm but it's incredibly funny but that comes back again right at the end of the episode where the doctor used the memory worm to try to incapacitate Dr Simeon um, similarly we get right at the very beginning I think it's even before the, the credits have rolled um, we get the doctor explaining that um, thoughts can disrupt the snowman uh, and again, that's kind of things hiding in plain sight because the plot is ultimately resolved by the family crying at, at Clara's death and that their tears wash the snowmen away. So again, we're kind of laying all those seeds early on, tying it together at the end. Mr. Moffat is the great intelligence. So my second point for recommending it is the great intelligence. And in this case, I'm talking about Victorian Clara. Um, I think she's a wonderful character. Um, You've really the... thought about this, haven't you? <laughs> I did. I did. So she gets us right from the start. I mean, right from the very first scene in the cold open. She's funny. She's clever. She's inquisitive. She's bright. Um, I think Jenna Coleman's a fantastic actress throughout her entire time on Doctor Who. Um, She's probably not loved because she has quite different arcs and different trajectories in the in the three seasons that she's in. So we don't necessarily get to know our Clara that well. But this version of Clara, this splinter, as we find out later on, I think is is really strong. And I know Stephen Moffat wants to go with this idea before they kind of bulked a bit at having a historical character. But uh, I think this Clara is lovely. She's a Cockney barmaid who puts on an act as a as a Victorian uh, well-spoken governess. Um, you know, she's she's brave, she's resourceful. And it's great shock when she dies. That's another great moment of the episode because I don't think any of us at that point were expecting uh, that version of Clara to, to die. So that's a, a great plot beat. And then finally, my third choice is the great intelligence. And in this case, I am actually talking about the great intelligence. Um, if you're going to bring back an old villain, I think this is a great way to do it. Um, it's not so... Um, confusing that the the not we audience watching on Christmas Day won't get it. I think there's plenty of explanations there. But for us fans, there's plenty of lovely nods to the past, such as obviously the biscuits in with the map of the London Underground on it, seeding the web of fear. Um, we get the whole business about how the great intelligence kind of uses avatars and mirrors what people are thinking about, which is why they're snowmen, which then kind of makes sense why we've got Yeti 
uh, in Tibet because they're mirroring what's around. Um, and I think the Great Intelligence is a great villain. And obviously Ian McKellen's voice is uh, exemplary and really brings the, uh, the fruity plumminess that you need to a proper Doctor Who villain, particularly on Christmas Day. Um, so those are my three reasons. Great Intelligence times three. We've all gone quiet. I'll tell quiet. you what, let's fuck the train. I'll give the, the swing vote to one of the two gentlemen below. So I'll go next. I can't disagree with a thing you've said, apart from one thing. I think that Sherlock joke is, oh, it's so Stephen Mike. It's so meta. It just makes me want to crawl into a hole and die. But apart from that, you've actually got the one, the only version of Clara I can tolerate in this episode. Uh, she's only in one episode, but gosh, she's wonderful. I really wish we'd kept Beryl. The whole time, you know. Um, it's beautiful to look at. It's so Christmassy, this, isn't it? And the sequence where we go up the stairs into the clouds, it's go harking back to that sort of magic that was in series five that he, he just did so well. I, th I think that sequence is brilliant. Um, I like the Paternoster gang in this as well. I don't often like them. Yeah, I, I just think I, I really love series 7A. And this continued the trend, sort of upward trend, I felt. I know a lot of people don't like that period. I certainly don't like B. But no, I think I think I think this is a solid Christmas special. I don't think it's like it's not gonna rock your world. The plot isn't that incredible. It does move me at the end as well. I think Clara's death genuinely moves you and the mystery around the two Claras and then him going off, it does kick us into the next half season really well. Yeah, it's fun. So yeah, it's staying in. Slide, slide. Go I'm for gonna, it, Johnny. I'm going I'm to vote uh, for this not to stay in, go down the oh. chute. Um, much as it pains me, uh, because I love Richard E. Grant in it, and I love Cockney Clara, who I've stuck with Cockney Clara, and I love the scene with Strax and the Mummy Worm, and all that stuff is lovely. Um, but my understanding is it had a it has a slightly had a slightly troubled production in that what was written and what was ended up on screen ended up being quite different for various reasons. I can't remember. I don't. I'm sure it's all in Andrew Pixley's guide, whatever it is. Whatever. But um, so you end up with very odd bits, like um, the scene where the Doctor uh, goes to investigate the pond. He's he's told one word, pond. And you probably remember that again. And then we cut to him investigating the pond. But we don't. We cut to him going to see um, the Institute. It's like this This scene has been just stuck there. And then after the Institute, he then goes to investigate the pond. And I'm just sort of looking at it going, that's really odd. Something's been, that, that scene looks like it was stuck in with like staples the day before the read through because it, it interrupts the flow of the story. Um, so there's old structural things of the little boy at the beginning seems important, but then vanishes. And but um, I think it, I think it has a sort of fundamental problem, which is Doctor Who, as we all know, it stands all and falls on its monsters. And uh, with the snowman, there was a I think there was a problem with the prop. But even then, with snowman, Doctor Who has invented another monster. That can't move. You know, did the snowman? They, when you're not looking, they go shuffle, shuffle, shuffle. <laughs> <laughs> and 
that's 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 slightly rubbish. I'm sorry. <laughs> These are not very. Funny. Um, and obviously, you just turn up the heat. They tend to turn to water. Oh, of course. <laughs> they're, they're literally, you know, very very um um unthreatening monsters. And then there's the um, ice uh, governess, governess, which I, I is one of those things where it could have gone either way. That could have been something absolutely terrifying on screen, but you're just looking at it and going, the technology wasn't quite there for that to work. Um, where I don't know how they did the motion of the character or whatever, but it just looks like something from a peter gabriel video from 1987 it's like it doesn't work and and when you're in a story which has got two monsters in it and neither of them are remotely sort of threatening or scary um no matter how good the script is and actors are you're just sort of going there is a this is doctor who you're tuning in for the monsters and so for that reason that cruel unfair reason I'm going to say it should be rejected. I think the snowmen look great when they rise up. Yeah, we don't see them move. And you've, you've identified the obvious reason why we don't. <laughs> but when we see them rise up with their teeth, I think they're very well realised. And obviously, we we kind of that first scene where they eat all the factory workers kind of establishes them as a as a threat. I think they look lovely. But yeah, When that um, ice woman is sort of stalking them through the house, yeah, I never really thought, just stoke the fires, everybody. You know, let's make it a bit warmer. <laughs> Jason, you've got the uh, the swing vote there for. In that case, it's going. Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> no, I, I, again, there's lots in this to enjoy. Um, you know, the Strax and the memory worm scene is hilarious. Sir, emergency! I've been run over by a cab. <laughs> uh, you know, it's brilliant. But that also had a. I had an issue with that at the time, which is that Strax was introduced in A Good Man Goes to War and given a very moving character arc where he's contrasted with rory so rory is the nurse who is becoming the centurion and strax is the warrior that's become the nurse and he has that lovely moment where he dies and says it's not as much fun as i thought it would be etc and he's dead and then he's just back to life because stephen moffat can't bring himself to actually kill anyone off and now he's an even more overtly comic character than he was in a good man goes to war so he's just been brought back as being basically the silly goblin and as much they as I love clones, Strax, you know, Jason. yeah, as much as I love Strax, no, it just didn't it didn't work for me at that point. But he was just brought back because Stephen Moffat doesn't <clears> like killing anyone off properly. Um, the TARDIS on a cloud. I'm sorry, I just cannot. <laughs> no, come the, on, the... find your inner child, Jason. <laughs> the 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 TARDIS on a cloud with the spiral staircase and the extending ladder that he uses a. And the fact that it's not only is it the TARDIS on a cloud, but it just happens to be at the top of the house when he needs it to be. And that whole test scene, the whole thing seems to be Moffat. One of the things that Moffat does is uh, tries to be clever without actually making any sense in doing so. So, yeah, the whole thing about the test with the doctor bringing the umbrella so that Clara can hook it and get the ladder fine except that the TARDIS wasn't there when we last saw it it was in the middle of a park what's it why is it now suddenly exactly where it needs to be on top of a cloud when did that all that stuff happen? he did say he's parked it there there is a line yeah but and 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 the whole thing about the Madame Bastra's one word answers thing is just 
yeah trying to be clever because there is absolutely no reason why the word pond should be significant to clara in the way that it's significant to the doctor just because oh there's a frozen pond and the doctor has just recently is mourning the loss of a person called pond who isn't actually called pond she's married she's amelia williams <laughs> and he's refused to address her you know married name except in that scene in the god complex he's constantly calling her by her unmarried name which is just rude to rory frankly <laughs> so it's just like it's trying to be clever but not really working because as i said there's no reason why clara should think the word pond would actually be significant to get the doctor involved at all um so that doesn't make any sense and i you know the um okay fine i'm gonna do it since i'm chucking the story out if clara fell from that height she would be in bits <laughs> she wouldn't this be is doctor who at six o'clock on christmas day plugged back <laughs> in by Strax's magic Moffat. remember he did bring back the you know, all of the dead and turn them into yeah. cybermen he's not incapable of it <clears throat> so you know that there's that and i don't you know oh oh they're all they're all crying so the snow all melts and it's just uh and why is clara a cockney barmaid and a refined english governess there doesn't seem to be any particular reason why she's doing two different things at all. It's fun. It's just, yeah, but why? It doesn't, it doesn't fit. It doesn't work for me because they just, they never explore why Clara is doing. I suggest these you try and lead a double life, you know, and you'll find <laughs> it is quite fun. So, well, you've broken my heart because Snowman's so, gone. So. Sorry, I just, <laughs> there's there's lots in it that I like, but it just there's so much in it that is just to me is just Moffat trying to be clever and not really succeeding for my money. So, sorry, so we're on we're on to our last story, which is a revolution of the Daleks. I'm guessing this is the dog that nobody wanted to touch. Revolution of the Daleks. Um, I actually came up with three reasons as to why I would keep it in, but I'm actually going to improvise three reasons to kick it out because I don't just want to be that person that defends a load of Jodie Whittaker stories. Um, <laughs> so I'm being contrary here because I love Chris Knopf in this and I love the Daleks going into the TARDIS at the end in this and I love the Daleks on the bridge in this. And I love Yaz's obsession with the Doctor being missing in this. And I love all the aliens, the Pating turning up in the prison in this. I love all of that. Um, however, let's say I I think the drone Dalek thing is a good idea, but it doesn't go far enough. It seems like it's on a hiding to be like a really scathing sort of political story. And then the second they reveal themselves, they're just Daleks. And so that doesn't really go anywhere. And I think it probably could have done. I think Chibnall is possibly the least political of the three showrunners. Um, and I think Russell would have gone to town with this idea. Um, John Barrowman is fun in this, but I don't know, it feels a bit gratuitous. I don't feel like we need him in it. I feel like the Doctor should probably get herself out of prison instead of just hanging around and waiting for an ex-companion to get her out. As fun as that sequence is, and I do like the chemistry between the two actors. Um, yeah, like it feels like, she, what is it? She's just been hanging around in prison, mulling over the fact that she's found out that she was adopted and then waits for somebody else to break her out. I don't, It just doesn't feel proactive enough. Um, and my third thing for getting rid of it. Oh, good grief. I've only got reasons for it. 
Somebody help me out here. <laughs> Chris Noth, Jack Robinson. No, I think Chris Noth is the best villain of the era. I think he's fabulous. So that's so the cartoony. point. That is the point. Yeah, but the rest him. of it's trying to be realistic. Or what, realistic of as you can with it. Are you kidding me? I think there's a greater realism to Chibnall's stuff, and I think Jack Robertson just and he's played so, so badly. Refreshing. He's mad he's... comic villain that's come straight out of season seventeen in the middle of oh. the very pious Chris Chibnall era. Um, I think he's wonderful as a as a rip on these you know crazy American politicians to be. I think he's very funny. Although are we allowed to talk about him anymore? Has he been cancelled? I think he's been cancelled, isn't oh, he? Yeah. Okay. He's on the verge of being cancelled. I'll give you another reason then, Joe. It's um lacks any sort of uniqueness, I think. Um I don't I mean Russell and Stephen Moffat have done different things every Christmas. Between um Chibnall's three New Year Day specials, there's a lot of overlap. So you've got the Dalek mutants in resolution, we've got the Dalek mutant on their backs in um Resolution and Revolution. Oh, it's difficult to get them around. The first two, yeah. we've got kind of an awkward romance in Eve of the Daleks, and we've got it in uh, Resolution. We've got lots of things kind of overlapping. And this feels like it's trying to take bits from all of them. The Emily Maitlis appearance, trying to bring it back to Newsnight, feels very RTD. Dalek saucer feels very old school. I mean, they've resolved the plot by planting bombs, then transmitting out. It's not exactly uh, very original. Um, in fact, Graham even references the fact, oh, we just did this to the cyber ship. So we're kind of just repeating, we're retreading into Dalek Wars. You know, we've been there, seen that, done that, back to the old series. It just feels like we're going over, we're treading over very familiar water and just rearranging the pieces into a slightly different jigsaw. And it just doesn't particularly work for me. Um, you've talked about a couple of things I was going to point. I think Jack is completely wasted. There's no point to him being there. You're right about the Doctor should have had agency by escaping at the beginning. Equally, it should have been Graham and, and Ryan taking the ship down at the end, not Jack leading the assault, although they just wander around a few corridors very quickly, then transmit away. The only thing really he brings is that conversation with Yaz about leaving the Doctor, um, which feels a little bit shoehorned in, and I think he's done a thousand times better the following year in Eve of the Daleks that we've talked about. Um, that conversation between John Bishop um, and Mandip Gill is so much more realistic than it is here. It, it just feels very shoehorned in. We're walking to the um, the base, but we're just going to stop and talk for five minutes and, and have this emotive scene. Just doesn't particularly work. Again, it's not overly earned. Um yeah, it's it's not not a favourite of mine. So I am jettisoning it. I've got to say though, sorry guys, before you jump in, I think to make a comparison, like it is fun and it is energetic and it is action packed, and so comparing it to something like Twice Upon a Time, this is far better family entertainment than something like that. So I I think on those merits of it just being a fun. 50 minutes. Oh, well, no, I'm against it, aren't I? You're Good against grief. it. Yeah, yeah, even so. It is, I'm still it's making got a the lot point. in it, but it's empty. It just feels empty to me. Sometimes that's fun, though. It's nice to watch a Marvel movie that's a bit empty, but action-packed. Mm. Oh, well. Uh, Johnny. Johnny. Well, I, I think this is the thing. It's It has, it is, it's a, it's a curate's egg, you know, I think, <laughs> uh, or a mixed bag, because there is, there is stuff I, I really like. I like the sinister um, Dalek sort of uh, gestation facility in the Sark. I think that's nice, traditional, spooky Doctor Who and works really well. Um, 
Now, some from the West Country, I love it when we go to somewhere other than London. And so the Clifton Suspension Bridge being iconic is appreciated. I love that a great deal. Um, uh, but um, the sort of, I'm going to say no to it going through because uh, I was watching it this afternoon as revision because I haven't, I don't watch it that often. And um, just there's scenes at the end of Daleks arguing with each other. And there, there's a reason why I think it, Gary Gillett used to call it squabbling rubber. And it's like two Daleks arguing with each other is just death on the ears, you know, it's just. And on television as well, you're going, you've got two static bins arguing with each other. <laughs> you know, this is the opposite of drama. It just doesn't work. Um, so, but I'm, I just really don't like the, as you've already mentioned, that we've got um, our first sort of female doctor and she's stuck in prison. Well, actually, I thought of another reason not to like it, but anyway, I'll come back to that. But our first female doctor, she's stuck in a prison and she needs rescuing by a man. And I'm just going, no, have her work out, have her do something incredibly clever, have her lead a jailbreak with all the different monsters, you know, have her do something where it's her intelligence, her bravery, her her daring, whatever, and her, give, give her a great moment and that isn't there and i feel that absence because i want that doctor to have those moments so much um and although captain jack turning up in his sort of giant force filled hamster ball is fun you're just going well have her i don't particularly like the character of captain jack but have her do that have her be the one who comes up stuff and and the other the other reason um is a couple around the same time I did um, the Monster Vault, and then this came up on television afterwards. I think so. For about a week afterwards, my son was just pointing out mistakes in my book, going, "I think you'll find the Pating also <laughs> returns in Revolution of the Daleks. <laughs> I think you'll find the Weeping Angels also returned in Revolution of the Daleks." Going, yeah, I didn't know. I think your book's wrong now. Your book's out of date. Oh, bless you. I think they can't sell your book anymore. I think the shops will have to stop selling You're your harsh book. It's <laughs> so I, 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 obviously, I hate it and despise it for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, did you know about the prison scene? I'm going to sort of contradict that because you go back to the Day of the Doctor, you had three versions of the Doctor in that stuck in prison and they couldn't figure a way out. And they needed Clara to come in and open the door for her. So it's not like all the other doctors are immune as well. No, the no other I, thing... think it, I think it's just because it's um it's the big set piece that opens the episode. I think yeah. during the course of an adventure, having companions or other characters rescue the doctor from jeopardy is absolutely fine. I think it's just that we've had the doctor stuck in this prison for a hundred years, where it's like she's been completely beaten by um the um the Jadoon, basically. You know, not even a particularly good monster. The Jadoon <laughs> have been the ones to finally defeat the Doctor. And it's like, I think it's just because she's so defeated. And I don't like that because, well, have her defeated, but then have her win. Have her come up with a clever way of doing it. And that's what, it's just because it's the big part of the episode. I think Especially. later on, fine. 
especially yeah. annoying because she comes up with that great conceit at the end of the episode to trick all those Daleks to going into that TARDIS and then having it self-destruct. I love that bit. Sorry, Jason. I hate that bit. Please have I, your say, Jason. I absolutely hate that bit. For two reasons, <laughs> two very good You're reasons. You're going to say, what a waste of a TARDIS, aren't you? I'm going to take it for two very good reasons. One, we have established that TARDISes are, to some degree, partly sentient, <laughs> and yet the Doctor just casually trashes this one. But two, more egregiously, the Daleks grab the idiot ball with all their plungers. <laughs> Every single bloody one of them goes into that TARDIS. Not even one stays behind in case it's a trap or anything like that. And it's just, and, and we haven't seen the Daleks do anything that stupid since the Dalek invasion of Earth when they, um, went, no, excuse when they all me. hovered over the place where the Earth's core was about to be blasted I'm out of the planet. I'm going to go back to Day of the Doctor again when all those bloody Daleks were around that planet. And somehow, <laughs> when the planet vanished, every fucking Dalek destroyed every other Dalek around <laughs> the planet and left none of them. I think they have been stupid in yeah. the series. But yeah, so they grab <laughs> the idiot ball and do, and do that. And that's just a very glib way of eliminating this massive Dalek force. Every single one goes into the TARDIS. It's not like, you know, we've got three Daleks. Let's see if we can trick all three of them. We've literally said we've got hundreds of the fuckers. And they all fly into the TARDIS. It looks glorious. It looks I love that so shot. Cool. The on. TARDIS hovering in the air with all those Daleks just piling into it. it looks yeah. gorgeous. But it is absolutely nonsensical that not even one <laughs> stayed behind. And then, right. um, sorry, sorry. But then we also have, there's lots of bits in it that don't quite tie up. Like, why did Captain Jack spend ages trying to get to the cell next to the Doctor when he broke her out from that communal <laughs> area that they were all in with his little gadget. Why did he need to be in the cell next to her when he didn't actually have it? Why didn't he use his gadget to just pop through the wall into her cell? You know, that's that's ridiculous. The the whole bit about Captain Jack having that conversation with Yaz, where he says being with the Doctor is really intense and you don't get to decide when that ends. And then we end the episode with the other two companions doing exactly the thing that Jack said you don't get to do <laughs> and going, actually, we'd rather stay here. Thank you very much, Doc. We'll see you later. So there's all sorts of bits in it. And yeah, the rehashing of everything from Revolution Resolution was just as soon as you, you know, we saw, okay, we saw the mangled remains of the recon scout Dalek casing and they using that as a model for a drone. Okay. I love that. But the second somebody said there was some organic material in there. Oh, we know where this is going. And conveniently there's now exactly enough Dalek creatures to inhabit all the drones were they all fitted with those funky colour changing lights that went red when an actual Dalek creature <laughs> took over them? Yes, yes, they were. You know, <clears throat> so it's just there's lots of there's lots of bits in it that don't that don't line up. And I agree completely with the doctor's lack of agency in getting herself out of prison. It is another it's just a way of keeping her out of the way of the story for the beginning part. Um, and so yeah, it just <clears throat> There's there, again. There's there's plenty in it to enjoy, and I I do like the new Dalek drone designs, um, and I love the fact that they sound like the ones out of Remembrance as well. The, mm. the vocal modulation, just a little thing that you know the not we won't care about, but we ah, hang on, I like that. But yeah, there's just it, it's just it, it's just a silly resolution at the end when they just all the Daleks just pile into a spare TARDIS and get blown up. I do like the muted ending for the two companions, though. <laughs> Finally, two people just decide to go. Like, this is our time. We Thank you very much. It's been a marvellous adventure. We're off. 
Well, instead yeah, of, you know, yeah. flying around the universe in a diner or heading off and having a lesbian relationship with a puddle or, or whatever all those companions I mean, did in the Moffat era. So We've all done it's, that still, it's still 10 minutes of the episode. It is. It, so it's still... Yeah. I do, I do like that departure scene, and it makes a nice change that the, for in the in the Chibnall era that the companions just decide, you know what, we're done, we've had fun, but okay, I'd rather stay on Earth as opposed to being ripped apart by two universes, being separated from the Doctor, or having their mind wiped, or um, or being killed and resurrected somehow, and going off with a puddle or whatever. And it's just like, no, these guys have just said, actually, you know what. That's enough, and I like that she leaves them with the psychic paper and the and the things like that to 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 sort of allow them to go and do their own thing later on. And I I I like that. And also, I'm sorry, I'm a sucker for the line two hearts, one happy, one sad." Yeah, that's nice. But seeing Grace in the sunlight, I mean, please, <clears throat> that's a bit much, isn't it? <laughs> that, that is that is that is one of those things where because Doctor Who is a sort of show where things can materialise and aliens can appear and stuff all the time anyway. Having that sort of moment in it, um, well, I, I just, my, my son found that confusing going, oh, she's back. She's coming back to her life. <laughs> she's evil. <laughs> because in Doctor Who, when things appear like that, we don't think, oh, it's what the character's imagining. We think that's in the world of Doctor Who. So, um I find that I find that just sort of mortgage. I have no no soul at all. <laughs> right, we have concluded round one, round two. I would be glad to know. <laughs> two and a half shorter. hours in, we've concluded round one. <laughs> so we've got we've got rid of four stories though. We've got rid of End of Time, <laughs> Snowmen, Time of the Doctor, and Revolutions. We've only got four left. Two of which are Chibnall stories, which is yes. quite shocking. Oh boy, thank you. Um, so what I'm going to do now is I've got the four names in a random generator. Uh, I'm going to spin it, pick two, and um, between us, we just need to agree which of the two is best. We've probably explored most of the reasons, but let's go for this. So the first one is Twice Upon a Time. And Twice Upon a Time is up against... Eve of the Daleks. Eve wins that one for me. Yeah, I'm going to go for Eve too. I'm going to go for Eve too. Looks like I'm well voted. (laughs) (laughs) I will say Eve is by far the best of the the three Chibnalls, so I'm very sorry to see uh, Twice Upon a Time go. So that lands in our fourth place. Craig, that was very quick. I wasn't expecting it to be quite that reason. You can give reasons (laughs) why you want to, but hey, that was... uh, Oh, it's fairly speedy, so we're down to three. So we are down now to Resolution. And Resolution is going to be playing Christmas Invasion. Oh, bugger. I have to keep Christmas Invasion. I have to vote Christmas Invasion on top of over, over Resolution, just because it is just... Because it's the first Christmas special and it was such a special time at that moment to know that our silly little blue box show had come back and been so successful that the BBC wanted a Christmas special. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to vote Christmas Invasion. Well, I've yeah. been quite scathing about re- resolution, so it's absolutely easy one for me. It's every time Christmas Invasion. Yeah, I think um, Christmas Invasion has um, 
the doctor accidentally quoting the Lion King, which I just find hysterical. <laughs> <from>. <laughs> um, it, is, it, it is the it is a brilliant moment of undercutting, whereas Resolution has that family. He shall not be mentioned. Uh, so Christmas Invasion, hands down. I'm going to say Christmas Invasion as well, because I think it's the first time we get a cock joke in Doctor Who when Jackie <laughs> says... Uh, as he got two of anything else as well, which is a great line, <laughs> and that's a good as reason as any to keep it in. I thought so. she was talking about brains. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> okay. I, right. I'm, well, I'm that was. Surprised. I'm surprised it's taken this long for you to make a comment along those lines, Joe. To be honest with you, <laughs> but I, I, I will add a caveat and say, well, yeah, I've got distinguished guests here today. I'm being on my best behaviour. Um, <laughs> I do love resolution, but Christmas invasion is better. Yeah, same. So we have really swiftly kick two out so we are left now just with the final two so it's eve of the daleks versus christmas invasion i'm going to be controversial and say eve of the daleks because i think it's i think it's one of chris chibnall's best ever scripts and i don't think the christmas invasion is one of rusty davis's best ever scripts um i watched eve of the daleks five times the week it came out i loved it so much uh, and every time I watch it, I enjoy it more. I find more to enjoy. It's it's a lot smaller than A Christmas Invasion. But within that, I think it's doing some very special things. So, yeah, I'm going for Evil of the Daleks. I'm going to go for Christmas Invasion um, for all the reasons I said in the previous uh, previous knockout is just even the daleks is fantastic and i love it but i just cannot help loving christmas invasion because it's just so christmassy and fun and an affirmation that what we all knew which was that doctor who is fantastic and now here we are the public and the bbc in 2005 agreed to the point where they said okay we want a christmas special and Russell T. Davis took a story that wasn't a Christmas episode, bunged some Christmas trimmings on it and gave us something that was just absolutely perfect for December 25th, 2005. And I love it. And it's always going to be up in the top for me for that, even though I agree, Joe, it's not one of Russell T. Davis' best stories. Um, but just everything about the context of that story puts it in the top place for me. It holds a special place in your heart. Absolutely. There's one apiece, well, Johnny. Well, I think, um, although, as we've mentioned before, um, by the time um, Christmas Invasion came around, they knew they had a hit on their hands. They also had a show which didn't have a leading man. And actually, I think the Christmas Invasion has a really hard job to do in terms of reselling a new Doctor after we've lost someone who's very popular. Um, and I think Russell makes it look easy, and that's his genius. Um, and I also that's one of the reasons for keeping it. The other one is I I love the fact that it's doing a sort of topical gag about the Beagle probe to Mars failure, which was all happened Christmas Day two years earlier, I think. Mm. And it's just nice to see Doctor Who referencing the real world in a way which hadn't happened for decades. Um, and the third one is I love the gag with the Sycorax rock. <laughs> I mean, they literally rock. And it's like, okay, that's funny, silly, but it still makes sense in terms of the program. So it doesn't, I'm kind of So um, Eve, I think, was a very good 
show. I think it was obviously done it, to, to film that during lockdown is an extraordinary achievement. I think the Sea Devil story after it shows how it could have gone wrong mm. and seeing how it went right is actually going, okay, this was not an easy, this is not a, a sort of a cakewalk to make this. Um, and like I obviously I was arguing for it to go through to begin with. So there is a lot there that works really well. And I think actually, I mean, I think Christian Knoll does his best work under pressure. Really, I think he is prone to um uh I don't know, um um losing doubting himself, I think, as he writes and changing his mind about things and second guessing the audience. Um Whereas I think we're actually with um, Eva the Daleks, he didn't have time for that. He just had to go for it and write by the seat of his pants. And I think actually he's really good at that. Um, I think because so I think um, we're actually getting showing what he can do. Um, and yeah, but no, Christmas Invasion definitely has to go through. Sorry. Wow, I've got the casting vote. Um, well. I'm not going to. Hang on, hang on. Some, somebody else has joined this podcast. <laughs> Nala, Nala, what do you think? <laughs> this is the second time this has happened. Toby was attacked by his last time. week. Oh, is it dogs? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, I'm just going to mute myself. I agree <laughs> that Eve is probably one of Chibnall's best scripts, and I think it is lovely. Um, but I think I'm going to end up siding with the Christmas invasion. Um, I think we've we've touched on a lot of the reasons before. You know, I grew up in an era when, you know, the thought of a Christmas Day special for Doctor Who was just completely unimaginable. And here it is, front and centre in the BBC schedules, Radio Times cover, press shouting about Doctor Who everywhere, shots of robot Santas. Uh, it's just, you know, it is a, a true Christmas present um, for us that we've been waiting such a long time for it to come back. For those um, of us who went through school being ridiculed and picked on because of our like, obsession with a TV show that wasn't even on anymore and is absolutely. crap and sad and silly and dodgy special effects and everything. To it have was it, even silly when it was on, yes. Yeah, yeah, so, so have here it, it now, is. the best, yep. you know, a, a, a recognised hit. Um, absolutely. Is, it, it was just such a Christmas present. Absolutely. So I think for that reason, and we not even touched on the um, don't you think she looks tired line, which I think is oh. one of the classic lines of Doctor Who. Very, very clever. So I am going to end up um, with the bravado performance introduction of David Tennant and say the Christmas invasion wins. I, mean, I don't want to say we were an obvious podcast, but that means two Russell T. Davis Christmas specials won the day. Oh, goodness, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I don't think that's necessarily expected. I think probably people were expecting Christmas Carol last time. And I must admit, I thought the snowmen would ace it this time. So I was surprised that fell early on. But we have a we have a clear winner to go through to the next round. So thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for your time today. Um, would you like to plug, I guess, would you like to plug anything or point people in your direction on social media or take the stage? Uh, well, um, I'll, I'll start plugging first. Um, please, everyone, join Blue Sky. It's it's much nicer than Twitter, and we have much more detailed Doctor Who conversations there. So it's it's a really welcoming place for Doctor Who fans. Um, in terms of plugging stuff, uh, by the time this comes out, I think my Rani uh, takes on the world audio will have been released to widespread acclaim. 
And <laughs> I'll let that, you know, all right? I'll I let think Joe, Joe, give it, Joe, give it a seven out of ten. Oh, it, shut up! <laughs> um, and then I've got uh, an old, oh, a classic monsters thing with uh, Invasion of the Body Stealers with the return of the um, Sinister Harmony Shoal. And then I've got Fugitive of the Daleks with uh, Vicky and Dodo and the Daleks. And I think there's something else, but I've forgotten it. Six uh, parts oh, John Pertwee? And a John Pertwee one, yes. Uh, Revolution in Space, which is also a surefire classic. They're all great. Man, oh man, that's well, a lot all, of listening, all, but I can't wait. They're all great when I left my computer. What happens to them after that is <laughs> not my responsibility. We said this in the interview, didn't we? It's the fault of the director. It's the actors. You've got a lot to live up to there, Jason. Yeah, bye. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not going to... I don't have much to plug, except, um, I mean, by the time this goes out, my, uh, my, my Christmas Doctor Who 70s quiz with Cy Hart will have happened. Um, so um, I, maybe the three of you, I'll see you there. Maybe I'll definitely um, be there this time. All right. Okay. <laughs> um, and there will be future quizzes during the, uh, during the course of the year. Uh, I'd also like to plug uh, robots in your eyes. My podcast with Steve Alexander, we have been taking quite a bit of an extended break, uh, but I can assure you we have more in the can and we will be returning in the new year to record more material with yeah. Transformers Series 3 and a few other bits and bobs. So Robots in Your Eyes will return in 2024. So Good look news. out for it. Fantastic. Uh, and for us, I'm going to plug our next episode of Strictly Come Hamster, which will be in two weeks time. Uh, after these first two, we're going fortnightly, uh, fortnightly on Mondays. And the next season we will be covering, we're going back to normal seasons now, uh, is season 11 with John Pertwee uh, is the next one that you will be hearing. Uh, so I think that's all. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us today and your excellent views and insights. It's been fantastic to have you on and we really appreciate your time. Um, and until next time, thank you for listening. And we have to do the corny line, Joe. Uh, what do I have to say again? Keep listening. Oh, thank you. Okay, let's go. Okay. Three, two, one. Keep, Keep listening. listening. <laughs> thank you. Good night.